Hello, everybody. Good day. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Merge Worlds, my Dungeons and Dragons story podcast campaign adventure thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's true. She was actually texting with me. That's correct. Um, thank you all for coming by. Um, this uh, promises to be a very big night for Merged Worlds. I hope I'm not setting the standards too high that I can't keep up with them. Uh, I have been writing for days, um, getting on paper what's been in my head um, for years at this point, to the point that I was writing as I was going live. Uh, there's still... And the worst part is, I don't know how long this is going to take, right? Um, so, I know it's not going to end early. There's a chance we may run late. Um, so, I may have to break this into two parts. So, if you're listening to this in the audio podcast on iTunes or Spotify, uh, you may want to check and see if there's a second part to this. Because <laughs> I can't make them more than, like, three hours without having to do a separate, excuse me, separate one. Um, but thank you all for coming. I appreciate it. Um, it's a pretty big deal for me. I've got about... Today I wrote for another six hours. I've got about 20 hours in to this episode at this point. Um, and unlike many of my episodes, much of this is very just thoroughly pre-written, like you're reading it from a book. I don't, I'm, a lot, I'm usually a lot of bullet points. And some of the stuff is there for me to remember things, and I still may change stuff as we go. But the overall story, I've just had it for so long that I know exactly what I'm going to do. Um, but... We're going to touch on a couple of things that happened first between the previous adventure and where we are now. There's a couple of just small things that we do. Hey, what's up, MT? Oh, we're just getting started, but, uh, you know, I like to start up with that. Um, so we're going to kind of touch on that. I'm going to kind of burn right into the story today and get going. I'm going to clean my glasses off first uh, because there's so much material to cover today. Um, the last thing that we talked about... Um, of course, the heroes all returned home. Uh, we learned about the uh, more ag aggressive actions of the Thieves' Guild. That's becoming a bit more emboldened and such. Uh, we also learned that Draven knew who the Black Rose was. Maybe one of the only people, other than the Thorns, who knows who a uh, Black the Black Rose is. And that he's had a bargain with her for years. That she was helping him try to find the man in the hat. Um, and making sure that no... Thieves activity takes place on Temple Ground. Big rule. Um, in exchange, he stays out of her business and doesn't tell anyone who she is. Hey, how you doing, Tyler? Pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. Excited and nervous about this story. Hoping it comes across as well uh, that it, as it has in my head the 1,000 times I've told the story to myself, right? Uh, other than Jim and you. <laughs> I've told no one. I couldn't even tell my wife because my wife has a habit of saying things in front of Ashley and Jim that might give away stuff. Um, so that was it. We found out about that. Uh, also, as a hint today, uh, I'm going to be introducing what could be my favorite NPC of all time. I hope that you love him as much as I do. Uh, that is in front of us. I am a man in a hat. That is accurate. I'm telling you the tale. Maybe I was there. Right? Wearing the... I got the Fire Moon symbol up there, right? I realized I'm not wearing the Fire Moon shirt today. I was, but then I spelled sauce. So now I have this shirt on. <laughs> I was going to wear my Merge Word shirt today, but then I'm a messy eater. So I've got some minis painted. We're going to pop up. One I've had for a while now that I'm so excited. 
uh, and we will come across that uh, representative very, very soon. So, um, all right. So a few things happen after they get home over almost six months to a year. So between six months and a year have happened since they returned home and the events that are going to start today. Uh, by the way, Darsh in your pocket has become a household running joke. That is awesome. Oh, that makes me so happy. Uh, you know, and that was a last minute addition. Uh, that was almost a spur of the moment thing where I threw that down. Uh, so I just, I thought of it that day and added it to the side and I was so happy with it. A darsh in your pocket. That's awesome. <laughs> minis. Yes. So I don't actually paint minis because I'm very uncoordinated and also very lazy, but on the Hero Forge website, you can digitally paint them. So I design a lot of the characters of the story, uh, there so I can show people what they look like. I screenshot them. Um, and if you go to my website, onlydraven.com at the top, there's a tabs, click on the characters one. You could see characters. I've got probably a hundred of them up there for all the different characters of the story. So that's how I represent them so people see what I'm trying to convey. I'll have to describe it as well because that's not my, my, my mojo. So if you're interested to see what any of the characters look like and you haven't, popping over there will give you a, a look of what these characters are. Um, including the gods. I have all the gods characters. I've got NPCs, PCs, all that sort of stuff. But this is the story I've been writing for 30 plus years. Uh, all to get to this. All of it led to this, what we're doing today. This is the beginning of everything. So I'm very excited to jump onto it. So let's hit a couple of those big events I was talking about. As you know, Maeve has be, was a squire. Um, and uh, she was training to become a paladin. That training has been completed. Uh, she basically graduated into paladinhood. She's still a low, low rank paladin, if you will, but she's still, she's reached that level. She's reached the point that she's a level one paladin and she's a minotaur. So she's a huge paladin. Um, and when she reached that point where she officially gains her sir rank, that's a big deal, right? The guy she's square to says, yes, you're there. You're basically graduating to become no longer my squire. It is an event. Now, it's not like a huge citywide event, but it is a, a very important event. Um, and so when that happens, Darsh and the entire family comes to Serenity for that. For that almost like a knighting ceremony. Um, Mercy and Artemis and all the other kids are there. They're very excited for her. This is her big goal. Um, but Maeve has uh, reached that point. Um, so Maeve has graduated to be a full paladin at this point. Um, that ceremony was special for an additional reason as well. Hang on a second. I got blur here. Let me fix that. There we go. Uh, got blurry. My face is very blurry today. I've been writing so much my hand is killing me. Uh, my fingers are all purple and dented. <laughs> but uh, um, during that event... Not only did she become a paladin, but several other paladins arrived from the Brotherhood of Rowan. So, um, Rowan is the uh, Knights of Rowan is the Brotherhood of Paladins that um, Weston belongs to, and several of them come to this as well because not only is she graduating into paladin. They offer her a place in that brotherhood. They offer because you don't have to take it. You know, if you're a paladin, you, you're trained to be a paladin. God's chosen you. You've chosen the God. You're set whether we like it or not. 
but we like you enough that we feel you have a place in our brotherhood. Um, so much so that even Sir Nyklos himself arrives as the eldest of the knights at this point. Um, and she accepts and is sworn in as a knight of Rowene. Um, so she is a paladin, she's set, and she wears the tabard of Rowene, which is interesting, right? Because her father is a merchant lord, Darstopia, all that business. Uh, but she doesn't wear his banner. She wears the banner of the god that she worships and the knights of Rowene. Um, so that's very, very cool. Um, put a cat up. If a cat comes by, I promise I will. Chubby old midnight sitting in a box three feet to my left. <laughs> so um, she becomes a paladin, but one of the knights of Rowene. So um, that not only gives her paladinhood, but it gives her access to them. The Knights of Rowene are not a huge group, but they're a pretty loyal group. And they've got access to some stuff and knowledge that down the road could be very beneficial. And in a pinch, if she calls for help, the Knights of Rowene will drop anything and come help. If it's something, you know, good. Like she's she's doing the work of the Lord that they follow, uh, the God of Truth. So a paladin of truth who can call upon other paladins, much like Quentin did during the one early war. And a bunch of them showed up along with Sir Nyklos to help because who are they fighting? Pandora, goddess of lies. Of course, they're happy to join in anytime. That's the fight. So Darsh and the entire family attends. It's the, one of the only times that they've all been here. Uh, and it was a, a big event for Maeve. Um, during that same time, Petal graduates from being just a, an apprentice, Petal, of course, being the half-kender, half-human mage, wild mage, um, she has reached the point where she's stepped from being an apprentice. She's still the lowest of the low rank in the mage tower, but she no longer directly serves someone. Uh, she also asks and is given permission to summon a familiar, not something that all mages want to do. Again, by way it works in merge rolls is much like second edition you summon a familiar you have to keep that familiar alive and when it dies you lose a constitution point permanently whether it's natural causes or not so she casts that spell and then she waits and normally within depending on where you are and the type of animals in your area within 24 to 48 hours an animal will arrive one that was that you know links to her personality one that's befitting of her um, and that is how she gets Whiskers, the rat. So, again, remember, she's short. A little taller than a, the average kender because she's also half-human. But her father's super short for a human. So, it still works out. Um, but Whiskers, the, uh, the rat, has joined her. Um, he's dark brown color. Took about 14 hours for him to up. He's incredibly cuddly. Goes everywhere with her. Sits on her shoulder most of the time, but also she has a big pouch that she hangs in her belt that he'll climb into and go to sleep sometimes. Um, and not only benefiting, uh, you know, much meeting her mentality, he's a straight-up klepto. So she's always finding him with stuff that she doesn't know where it came from. Sometimes he steals from her, and she still doesn't know where it came from because she's a kender. Uh, but yes, uh, Whiskers is also just a straight-up klepto who is constantly taking things when he's not being watched. Um, so I'm very happy with that. Um, Whiskered has entered into the fold. Uh, Seraph, as we know, has visited Dina on several occasions. We've mentioned that. Um, Dina's family's always polite and friendly, and clearly they can see the two are getting relatively serious, right? Um, 
but they don't always seem super happy he's there. You know what I mean? One of those things where he's like a little worried. Like they're like, mm, maybe what, you know, he doesn't know why. He's like, are you worried about my intentions or what's going on here? Um, but he, uh, they had made arrangements for her to come to Serenity and visit him for the first time. But unfortunately, her grandma has fallen quite ill over the last few months. It had to be canceled and she's had to stay at home to help take care of her grandmother. Remember, she lives with her grandparents who are pretty old. Uh, her mother died a year, a couple years before at this point. Father died when she was young in the war. And her uncle, who's a mercenary, lives with them as well. She's raised by her grandparents and the uncle that pops in and out. I can imagine the stash the two of them have together. That is correct. So, <laughs> okay. So, we're bumping ahead. Like I said, between six to, this is probably six to eight months after the, uh, advent, the last adventure when the main heroes and characters have come back home. Life is relatively normal. Then I have some things to read. I have a lot of reading today, so we'll see where that goes. <laughs> uh, Sarah sat in the dining hall of the temple. It wasn't a standard mealtime, so the large room was nearly empty. Sitting there in the corner alone, he was reading a book he'd borrowed from the library. It told the history of a world where goblins had been loyal servants of the light, but were crushed by the allied armies of humans and ogres. It was incredibly interesting and helped take his mind off his own worries. Absently, his hand pressed against the small pouch at his belt. His mind wandered to his friend Deacon, the Prince of Firemoon, who had returned home a week ago and would not be back for another month. With him, he carried a letter for Dina, the love of Sarah's life. He wanted to travel with Deacon, but responsibilities at home made that impossible until Deacon's next trip home. That trip would be incredibly special. Doing his best to refocus on the book in his hand and the apple on his plate, once again he became lost in the tale of sacrifice made by the heroic goblins. He wondered if there were any left alive. For the book to exist, someone or someplace would have had to been brought through during the Great Merge, the event that created the world Seraph lived on. He hoped there was. He'd like to meet a goblin of that nature. Seraph heard the footsteps long before the runner entered the dining hall. He wasn't concerned at first. It wasn't unusual to have runners delivering news in a hurry. Then he heard the jingle of the runner's weapons. His incredible hearing picked up sound most people would not hear. He knew those sounds. He recognized the runner's pace and the way the man carried himself. He should not be here. Um, okay. <laughs> Seraph was standing and already walking towards the door when it flew open and Deacon ran in. The look on Deacon's face froze Seraph's heart. What has happened, my friend? Seraph whispers. Deacon stepped to him and took his arm. We must speak in private. Seraph could hear the urgency in his friend's voice and allowed him to lead him from the hall towards, Deacon's, or towards Draven's, or Seraph's chambers. The two young men hurriedly made their way there, the book lie forgotten on the table behind him. So, Deacon, Prince of the Kingdom of Firemoon, also born with the ability to tap into wild magic. Father's not a big fan of that. His uncle went evil with wild magic, so on and so forth. So, of course, he's been coming and learning how to control that magic here in Serenity, where there's a mage tower. He comes for several months, goes back for a month. Comes for several months, goes back for a month. That happened since he was, like, seven years old. He's been going back and forth, learning to control this stuff so it doesn't overtake him like his uncle, and he can eventually be king. So he was gone back a week ago, shouldn't have been back for another three to four weeks. Right? So he goes back for a month, then it's like a week of travel. Um, 
And now he's back. He shouldn't be. What do you mean she's gone? Seraph exclaimed. Calm yourself, Seraph, Deacon replied. You must hear all of my words to understand. Seraph was filled with enough emotion to pull his long white hair out, yet he calmed himself as much as possible and sat back down next to Deacon on the sofa. Deacon wasted no time in continuing. Not just Dina, but her whole family as well. Seeing the fear in Seraph's eyes, Deacon quickly recounted what he knew. It seemed that a few days before Deacon's return, there had been an alarm in the Kingdom of Firemoon. A fire had occurred in one of the residential districts. It was quickly put out, and there were no apparent injuries. When the king was advised, he immediately summoned Smalzius, his close friend and ally. The fire had been at Dina's home. Upon searching, they were pleased to find that no one had been inside. What they also found was quite the mystery. Both the home and the store below, owned by Dina's grandparents, had been ransacked. It was clear whoever had done so had been searching for something, though what it was, no one could tell. Looking further, Smallsius learned from the neighbors that the shop had been unusually closed the past several days, and no one had seen Dana, D Dina or her family in all of that time. Smallsius' investigation led him to the city gates. There he learned several days earlier a man matching Dina's uncle left the city with a wagon of goods late in the evening just before the gates closed for the night. Seems Dina's uncle was fairly well known by some of the guardsmen, so he had not been searched or questioned. As a mercenary, it was not uncommon for him to leave the city at times, although none could be found who could recall him ever taking a full wagon when he did. It is assumed the rest of the family may have been hiding inside. Where they had gone after leaving the city, no one knew. No trace of them could be found. Again, Seraph was on his feet, moving about the room, grabbing things from around him. I must go, he exclaimed. I must find her. Deacon was beside him then, stopping him. Calm yourself, my friend. Cannot go. Seraph turned to him, furious. But Deacon just stood there. My father has sent men in all directions. Smallsius himself leads the search. My father knows how much Dina means to you, but even if she didn't, she is still one of our people. You have no way to know which way she went. My father will find her, and when he does, he will send word here immediately. When he does, you're going to want to be here to get that message. Sarah stood there a moment fighting his emotions to keep them at bay. Ever since they were boys, Deacon was the one person who could calm him down. Finally, Sarah fell back to the couch defeated, and Deacon sat down next to him, yet remained silent, giving his friend time. After a couple minutes, Deacon noticed Sarah's finger grasping the small bag on his belt. Smiling, he asked, Did you get it? Confused at first, Deacon gestured towards the pouch. Sarah's face reddened as he replied yes. He finished it this morning. Seraph untied the small pouch and handed it to Deacon, who opened it and poured the contents into his hands. The ring was beautiful, handcrafted of silver and gold by a local dwarven jewelsmith of great skill. It was fashioned to look like flower petals, with beautiful gems set in their center. They were incredibly lifelike, and the dwarf had done an, excep an exceptional work. It's beautiful, Seraph. She'll love it. Seraph smiled weakly as Deacon handed it back. 
He stared at it for a moment before tying it back to his belt. Fear not, my brother, Deacon said, placing his hand on Sarah's shoulder. You will get to place it on her finger. Of that, I've no doubt. Sarah hoped Deacon was right. He'd saved and worked for two years to save enough to have it made. He'd hoped to give it to her here in Serenity on her first visit, though her family responsibilities had kept her from coming. That was to be a very special night, and hopefully the first step of their lives together. Looking out the small window, Seraph prayed to the gods that she was okay, and that the fates would guide them back together soon. So, Dean and her family are gone. The question is, was the house ransacked by them before they left, or by someone else after they were gone? Or before they left, and that's why they left? Many different questions there. Uh, I'm going to be talking a lot today, so I'll be drinking a lot. Um, so that's a lot of business. It's a lot. You can imagine. Seraph's got a ring made. I think we all know what that means. Deacon's the only person that know it exists other than the dwarf that he hired to make it for him. Seraph knows that, uh, while his parents have been incredibly supportive, uh, they ha are going to have some concerns with him trying to marry Dina, of course, as a human. Seraph is a half-elf half-born vampire demon. That's a com combo that just isn't found every day. Um, elves live incredibly long time, and Draven, his father, his race, uh, well, of the born vampires, live even longer than elves. And demons can sometimes be ageless, it seems. So, it's very likely that Seraph will live a very, very long time. A human. She will not. So that's a lot of heartache, you know, after what would be just a grain in the sand in the, in the beach of what would be his life uh, would be hers. So he knows that. That doesn't mean he gives a damn at this point. He uh, still, want, still wants to do it. But he knows that there's going to definitely be some people with issues there. That news comes through. He's stuck at home, and he's just waiting now to hear... From the Kingdom of Fire Moon. Did they find her? Have they found a trail? Do they have any news? And nothing comes. Over the next three months, Seraph basically lives in a state of restrained panic. Right? Every day, is this the day I find out something bad happened? Is this the day I find out something good happened? And, you know, what do I do? You know, always having a pack ready to go in case word comes and he has to leave. Every day, just building and building upon that stress. And over the next several months, stress that over the next three months, that just continues to get worse. Deacon had heard no news at this point. Uh, Dean and their family seem to have just completely disappeared in thin air. The trail literally goes cold at the first village that they someone saw them go to. It's like, yeah, they came into this village, but I don't remember seeing them leave. And then the wagon's gone, they're gone. No one knows what happened. Um, so they're still looking. They're not giving up on this, of course, because again... Something bad happened in the in the city, and the king, nothing else, wants to know why somebody lit fire to that place, because that could have hurt lots and lots of people had they not put it out in time. Well, while this is going on over these three-month period, Serenity is also in a state of flurried activity. The whole city, super, super busy. This has happened before. Super busy because they thought a war was coming. Super busy because a festival was coming. It's, the city is just... All in super busyness. It happens a lot for some reason. 
For years, the southern kingdoms had been working very, very hard to include the elven empire of Centrael into its alliance. Right? Well, you remember that the southern kingdoms consisted originally of Thorman, Paxiwal, and Arduel. Uh, he physically aged normally to a certain age or age very slowly. Um, he is going to... <clears throat> let's think of it very much like an elf. Right? An elf will physically look like they're an adult by late teens, early 20s. But they could live, to, you know, they may look identical for hundreds, if not a thousand years before they really start to look older. So the same kind of concept for him. He, that first part of your life, you still grow up to an adult-ish relatively quickly. But once you hit that adult phase, you become almost unchanging for a very long period of time. Uh, a great example of that is if you look at, say, um, The Hobbit, right? There's the elven king there, the father of uh, Legolas, right? He didn't look that much older than Legolas, yet he'd been hundreds and hundreds of years older, right? The dude still looked like he was young, but he could have been a thousand years old by that point, you know? So, and you look at Elrond, right? I mean, technically movie magic, but still, he was at the battle where, the, where, the, where Sauron was defeated, then here he is in the future, and they look identical. He hasn't changed at all. And he looks older already. So um, at that point, he'll physically age to a certain point, and then he's still aging. It's just so tiny, slow. Old age would nearly be anywhere. Uh, Michael says, okay, cool. That makes sense. You're very welcome. Cool. Love that. Thank you. Um, so they've been, the first three kingdoms were Paxiwal, Arduel, and Thorman. Those were the first three in the southern kingdoms. Kingdom of Firemoon joined. Serenity joined. Right. Then they managed to get Kronayar, the Minotaur Kingdom, to join, much, much because of Darsh's uh, connection there. And then they got Coromin, the Dwarven Kingdom, that they saved as well. But the Elven Kingdom of Santriel had locked its borders off and wanted nothing to do with humans, to the point that there was even some aggression there, until our heroes um, managed to go in there and basically save the kingdom's life kind of thing, and turned out that uh, many of the reasons that they hated humans were all part of a plot for that exact reason, to keep them isolated. Um, so over years since that time, they've been trying to bring Santriel in again. Not only is Corman on the other side of Santriel, so they got to kind of go around there just to get to all the other cities anyways, the Dwarven Kingdom. It'd be more convenient, right? Um, but Elven Goods not only is new buyers, but also new sellers. So, um, and bad things happen. The more friends you got, the better off you are. So, and the Elven Kingdom is a pretty powerful group. Um, they're probably the largest nation. Land-wise, uh, land their kingdom takes up five times more than Paxwell. Uh, and Paxwell's the second largest one for sure. I mean, Serenity's actually close to Paxwell in size. Paxwell's just got a much bigger city. So, Getting the elves in has been a big goal. And Mercy and her friends and the relationship they built with the leaders of the elven nation is what's allowed it to get as far as it has. Finally, the day had come. Over the past year, the elven prince Pontius had been visiting each of the southern kingdoms. So they'd agreed to basically join up, but they wanted to tour all the kingdoms that they're going to be joining up with. So Pontius... The crown prince at this point, friend of everybody, nice guy. He's been traveling from Kingdom King. Went and saw the Minotaurs, went and saw the Dwarves, went and saw all the human nations, Fire Moon, all that kind of business. Um, and in each one of those situations, representatives from every city also went to that city. So when he shows up, there's people from everybody there representing 
Like, yes, this is this city, but we're all part of this friendship, right? This is what we all bring to the table together. You're not just getting this city, you're getting all of these guys as your allies. Now it was Serenity's turn, and they were being given an unprecedented honor. The elven sovereign Landorian himself was coming, and the treaties would be signed on his visit. So Serenity's the last city that they're going to come to, right? Save the best for last. Because Mercy and her friends were the linchpin to get this all to work, they're going to sign the official treaties. The Elven Nation is going to officially join the Southern Kingdom Alliance in Serenity. And because he's still the Emperor, or the Sovereign, um, he's going to sign them. He's not sending his son to do it. So he's coming himself. That's big sauce. Because almost nobody in any of has even seen the dude. Right? He's going to send his generals and his ambassadors, and his son has been doing a lot of the work, because his son was much more open to dealing with humans and other races. So his son took the, the, the work side of making this all happen. Um, so it just goes to show how big of an honor and how much trust that is for Serenity, that the Sovereign's coming there himself. Again, it was in no small part due to the friendship Mercy and her allies had with the Elven Nation that had caused him to come this far and open its forest to trade. Now everything would be finalized here in Serenity, and Mercy, of course, wanted everything to be perfect. Attending as well would be representatives from all of the Southern Kingdoms, the largest gathering of dignitaries this world had ever seen, that they know of. Right? It's a new world. It's easy to do that. A lot of firsts. It's easy to be the first one to do something in the world when the world's only existed 20 years, right? The city itself was getting a good cleaning, though there was not much to do. Repairs and decorations were being completed on every street, and the citizens and businesses worked to show their best. Mercy had also put together a massive push to curb the action of, actions of the Thieves' Guild. It was the most aggressive she'd been against them, and had successfully shut down multiple of their operations and had made many arrests. Still, the identity of the Black Rose and her lieutenants remained a mystery. No step closer to finding out who the Black Rose is uh, and where she stays hidden. At the same time, her thoughts... Oh, no, I skipped a, skipped a paragraph. My, the temple as well was busy preparing for the event. The sovereign and other dignitaries would be attending a service uh, during their visit, and for the first time, Artemis was nervous, hoping to represent Serenity, her temple, and herself very well. Artemis, Artemis is nervous in every situation except when it's time for her to get up there and give her sermons. She's very good at that. Um... Compared to most other clerics, jumping into battle, she's probably way more confident. But compared to the warriors and rogues and stuff in the group, she's still a little bit more nervous about that kind of stuff. Boy, she gets, uh, she gets shy out of everybody, too. She's the only one in the group that gets shy, except for Mercy when it's something romantic, because Mercy has no idea what's going on. Mercy does not have a clue when romantic stuff is happening. It has to be written out with plain instructions for her to have a clue. At the same time, her thoughts were always on her son. Since Dina's disappearance, he'd become sullen and depressed. He often spent days at a time alone or with only Deacon. He'd grown isolated and at times quick to anger. Artemis and Draven did their best to give him the time and space he needed, though he would be expected to attend some of the events. That was a concern. The other children, though, were very excited. As princess, Artis would be attending most of the meetings. As the future ruler of Serenity, it was important that she begin building a relationship already with the longer-lived elves, right? Did you think about that? The Sovereign, 
signing on, great. He needs to get to know the princess, because to him, it's like the blink of an eye. Mercy would be dead of old age, and now he's dealing with artists. So getting that going now is important. Um, so it would be important that a lot of people have their children or younger folks there that are going to be dealing with the elves on a much more longer term. Petal and Maeve would be there as well. Petal was going to be attending with her mother, while Maeve would be there as a representative of the Knights of Rowene as well as Darstopia. Her father would not be able to attend, but Jorn and her older brother Tyrion would be there. And remember, Maeve is a twin. Her brother was born, he was like 12 or 13 minutes ahead uh, of her. Um, and so... They're twins, but they're not identical twins. They look nothing alike. In fact, Maeve is bigger than him. Uh, Maeve definitely got her father's size, because Darsh is large for a minotaur. Um, Tyrion and then her younger sibling um, sings one or two. I think he has three kids or four. Hell, I have to look it up. His kids are all smaller than Maeve. Maeve is big. Uh, way bigger than her mother. And her mom's pretty good size. They're minotaurs. Nobody's tiny when you're a minotaur. Um... So she's there representing with her father, or with her brother as part of Darstopia, and the Knights of Rowene along with Weston. Um, Ran was also unusually excited as well. It was a rare day when all of the Knights of Serenity would be together, and Ran would be attending with his father. Remember, Ran is the son of one of the Knights of Serenity, whole life dedicated to trying to become a Knight of Serenity. Ran secretly hoped to have the opportunity to speak to Sir Seamus. Ran wanted to ask the knight to accept him as his squire, as the man currently did not have one. I want to touch on that, right? So he's been training for years. Still the youngest of everybody, right? But he's at that age where he could become a squire. He does not want to ask his father. That doesn't make sense. His father wouldn't, his father probably wouldn't take him on. Part of becoming the squire is you got to go and prove yourself you want that. You got to go up there and you got to work for it. Um, and so of the knights, uh, he's chosen Sir Seamus. Sir Seamus currently does not have a squire. Uh, he wants to use this opportunity to ask him to take him on. Um, that would drastically, of course, change Rand's life. He'll get a whole bunch more work and things to have to deal with and so on and so forth. Um, and he'll be spending a lot less time with his friends and family because he'll now be probably relocating into Serenity proper for that. Because he lives in Serenity, but he lives slightly on the outside of the city. Overall, it promised to be quite the spectacle, and everyone worked tirelessly to prepare for it. So this is a big deal, right? Elven King, come in here, signing a treaty to bring the biggest nation into this southern kingdoms, which are all pretty peaceful and have never had any animosity towards each other. Uh, the Minotaurs almost a little bit, but overall, they still got past that. Uh, Darstopia itself... Uh, is a part of that as well. I keep forgetting to say it. Darstopia itself is recognized as its own party. Um, it, while it's very much in league with the Minotaurs and the humans, especially Arduel, um, it is still viewed as its own entity and has signed on as part of the Southern Alliance as well. So that's kind of where we're at. All these things has happened, right? So most of the kids at this point have reached that point where they are level one characters. For all intents and purposes, right? Level zero, level one characters. If they went out, they have some skills. They've got the basic stuff. No longer an apprentice. No longer a squire, so on and so forth. With the exception of Ran, who, historically, squires who want to become knights. Not just warriors, but knights train longer 
for that type of thing. So he's trained as long as them. He's the equivalent of a level one fighter. But when you come out as a knight, you don't come out as a level one knight. A knight would be, in my opinion, the way I would view that is, um, a knight is trained to the next level. So by the time you be, you know, you're a level one warrior, you're a squire. You're a knight at level three or four. Like you've got to get some of that work done before you can earn that title. Um, so at that point, I'm a knight because I've earned that through working and effort and so on and so forth. Deeds and so on. And by gaining, ready for it, here's the technical side of D&D, the experience <laughs> points necessary to be a knight. Because it's not just being a warrior, there's other stuff that comes with that. Uh, and I'm also considering, as I've already said, Templars, the Holy Knights, which are a very big deal in Merged Worlds, I am creating them into a character class. Um, Knight of Serenity, I'm p considering making a class as well. Um, so that's something I'm looking at. Throwing that out there. All right, let me wet my whistle. See, so we get to some of the meat of the episode, huh? It was three days until the Elven Empire of Santrael would officially join the Southern Kingdoms. The Sovereign would be arriving the next day, to much fanfare. Already, multiple ambassadors and dignitaries had begun arriving, had been doing so days earlier. Mercy and Ulrich sat in the throne room in the main hall of Serenity, on the throne in the main hall of Serenity. Uh, throughout the day, they'd been greeting and welcoming their guests as they'd been arriving. Many of them were still there, seated at the many tables, chatting and meeting with each other. So the main hall of Serenity is very much almost like a Norse or Viking dining hall. Uh, so they sit on their little thrones and a table can be brought out and put in front of them. They're gonna, if there's a special event, they're going to eat. They're on the little bit of raised area, but there's multiple tables throughout the room. If you're walking up that main aisle, there's... Tables aside, where people can be sitting and drinking and eating at any given time. You know what I mean? And an event like this, you can imagine, is just full of people who've been showing up. Not far away, towering over everyone else, sat Tabork, ambassador from the Kingdom of Firemoon. Tabork, as you'll remember, is a minotaur, and the only minotaur bigger than the Emperor of Kronayar. He also has one metal arm. That's another conversation. Um, but, 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 but. Master of the Kingdom of Firemoon. He sat with Queen Lana Dragonsbane of Thorman and King Christopher Wormsblood of Arduel. Both leaders had come themselves to the meeting instead of sending, instead of sending representatives. Would that have to be a Knight of Serenity or could it be any major city? Knights of Serenity are kind of... Good question. Michael asks, would it be a Knight of Serenity or would it be of any major city? Um, so the way I'm thinking of it, there are three versions of it. Uh, there's the Knights of Serenity. So imagine these are all knight, but there's three classifications under them, right? So you got your looking at a chart point of view. You got your warrior, your ranger, your so on, your so forth. Paladin falls under warrior. Normally, second edition it does. I think it's its own thing at this, but falls under that classification. You'd have knight. There are three versions of it. Okay. There's knights of serenity, because these are things that are a step above your regular warrior. They're an organization that exists and would have specific rules, functions, and abilities based on where they are. So you've got your Knights of Serenity. You've got your Knights of the Light. We've talked about them a bunch of times. They're not paladins. They're just knights who worship the light. They don't use magic. They're very anti-magic. 
Um, Mercy's father was one. The Knights of the Light have joined with them on multiple occasions to help fight. Her father uh, has uh, has rebuilt the keep where Michael went all woogly-woogly. Uh, in Thorman, that's uh, a place of them now. So the Knights of the Light would be the second one. And the third one would be the Knights of Firemoon, because Firemoon also has his own set of knights, long before Mercy ever had Knights of Serenity. So there would be three classes to choose from because I, I just feel every city has knights. Every kingdom does. But these are an affiliation organization that are held to a higher standard. So it's harder to be one, but you get some extra perks and benefits and limitations based on which of those you choose. So it'd be three different type of three knights you could choose from in Merged World. Um, at this time, it's not to say I wouldn't add one down the road as other parts of the world become available. But with the current stuff, it would be Serenity, Fire, Moon, or Night of the Light, which are all a form of night. Good question. Thank you. Uh, yes. So, Taboric is sitting in chatting with Queen Lana and King Christopher from RUL. Uh, so, these leaders came themselves. This is a big deal. They decide they're going to come all by themselves and take care of this. Um, now, between introductions, Mercy and Ulrich mingled with their guests and also continued to oversee the festivities. Shayla, Mercy's assistant, remember the half-elven young lady that she hired in a previous store? Um, Shayla, Mercy's assistant and head steward, entered and exited as needed, seeing anything that didn't need Mercy or Ulrich's direct attention. Here we go. Every so often... Daniel, Serenity Keep's official herald, would enter the chamber and introduce the next guest. Daniel took his job very serious. A larger man, he was always found dressed properly, no matter the occasion, usually adorned in much lace and frills. So you can imagine, he's a fat guy, probably got the, 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 the beard on him, just the bottom, none of the mustache, just the beard. He's got the big lace and foofy thing. He takes his job, ah, now presenting to king and queen. Blah, 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 blah. He takes that job very, so he's very proper, very prim, looking down on things that aren't noble. And, you know, Mercy's the queen, and Mercy is an unqueen-like queen. You know what I mean? Mercy will hop down and arm wrestle somebody in a heartbeat. You can imagine him like, oh, Lord, what do we get? You know, it's just that's that kind of guy he is. Um, when the door opened and Daniel stepped in this time, Mercy could see he had a very unusual expression on his face. He closed the door quickly behind him and made his way to the throne. Um, your highness, he said, there is, um, there is someone here. Uh, he claims to be an ambassador. Uh, from a land to the west, though it is no kingdom that I've ever. He says it is important that he speaks with you. The two things there. He's obviously nervous about whoever's outside the door. Number two, kingdom he's never heard of. A herald, these are the people who know the lineage of everybody and this and that. Son of this, daughter of this, slayer of the dragon, this. For it to be a kingdom this guy's not heard of, that's going to be unusual. The guy who knows that type of stuff especially anything that's around that area. Mercy was puzzled. What land to the west? Cole had already arrived from Corman yesterday. The only other lands she knew to the west were Darkmoor and Devon's people. King Darkmoor continued to decline all inquiries to join the southern kingdoms, so she highly doubt it was an ambassador of his. 
The Dark Moor, of course, the kingdom far, far to the west. Actually, a little bit northwest, but way over there. We've had some interactions with him before. Not a bad dude, but he's a wizard king who takes protecting his people very, very seriously. He has no desire to affiliate with anyone else. He's also a master collector of magic items and artifacts, which we've learned through adventures. He's got some, probably the biggest hoard of magical artifacts that anyone knows of in the Southern Kingdoms. Uh, another reason he's not in a hurry to join up with the Brotherhood of Magic, which has a tower in most of the cities of the um, Southern Kingdoms, with the exception of Firemoon. Rafe's not going to have any of the business. Brother was an evil wizard. He's not going to take that chance. Uh, and there isn't one in the Elven Kingdom or the Dwarven Kingdom. The dwarves have a clan that's mostly mage-like. There have been some inquiries about potentially affiliating them with the Brotherhood. Uh, since it was learned it was one of their people that summoned the demon that messed up the Dwarven Kingdom and all that business for hundreds of years, they've really been on the we want to apologize kick. So uh, if they can join with the Brotherhood and say, hey, well, look who we're bringing to the dwarves now. We've got access to all this extra help. Uh, that might be a good sign for them. Darkmoor is not interested. Uh, and then, of course, Tevin had had no contact with his people for years, and they were not ones to travel. The ambassador was not likely one from the tribes. So Tevin, of course, Draven's best friend, he's known as a tribal. A tribal is a type equivalent, for all intents and purposes, Native Americans' type lifestyle. There are different tribes, tribals, because obviously that's what we do. Um, and they live also very far, but not quite as far as Darkmoor. Um, they have a place they live. They don't travel. They don't deal with the outside world very much, and they like it that way. Tevin is a member of them, but he doesn't travel back and forth. He lives in Serenity with Draven and, and, and friends. So there's been no contact over there. It would be odd that one of them would show up. So Mercy's like, I don't know who Kingdom to the West you've never heard of. Probably means it's Kingdom I've never heard of. That's odd. Says, how interesting, replied Mercy. Well, show him in and we'll speak with him. Daniel stood there, obviously uncomfortable. Is there something else, Daniel? Daniel looked back to the door nervously. And then back to Mercy, rubbing his hands together. My lady, he does not quite look like someone benefiting of such a rank. Mercy suppressed the desire to frown at him. She knew Daniel had a bad habit of looking down on those he considered not worthy of her time. It was a habit she'd been working very hard to break from him. Does he appear to be in danger? She asked. Daniel grew red and embarrassed. Uh, no, my lady, uh, my queen. Uh, he's, he's alone. He just looks odd. Now Mercy knew her displeasure showed on her face. Then introduce the man and invite him in. Serenity's doors shall always be open to visit. Daniel, seeing she was not happy at what he said, very quickly bowed and walked back to the door. Mercy shared a silent look with Ulrich. She could see he was equally confused on who the new guest could be. The great doors opened, and nothing was there. Mercy heard Daniel whispering to someone around the corner, and then a small head popped from around the doorway. The little man stepped out nervously, and then began slowly walking down the corridor. The entire chamber went silent at the sight of him. It was clear that, to everyone in attendance, he was unlike anything they'd ever seen. The little man stood about three and a half feet tall. 
His hair was cut into a tall mohawk and dyed a bright blue, while his facial hair appeared a bright red. His pants and boots were made of a tough leather and obviously homemade. He wore no shirt, but a leather strap ran across his chest to his belt, and on his shoulders were feathers and several large animal teeth hung from around his neck. His incredibly muscular chest, arms, and even his face were marked with bright blue tattoos, and on his belt he wore a small sheathed weapon Mercy didn't recognize, and the handle of a much larger weapon protruding from behind his shoulder. Your Highness, said Daniel, I present to you the ambassador of the land of New Gully? We're right on there, Michael. Mercy's face broke into a huge smile. It was clear the young man was a gully dwarf, but as he looked around the hall in open-mouthed wonder at the people and the decorations and the room's sheer size, Mercy could see in his face, especially in his smile, the image of a dear friend from long ago. Stopping before the thrones, the young man cleared his throat nervously and then spoke. Greetings, Queen of Serenity! I am Bassador from the land of New Gully, a kingdom far to the west. That's that way. West, right that way. Over there. Right, that way. Got it. Okay. I have been sent by the great King Figgy to deliver a message to a Mercy Heritan and a Artemis Silverstar. The Fluffy Man said that your name is Mercy too. Are you the Mercy Heritan? Mercy smiled and nodded. Yes, Ambassador. I am the Mercy you seek, and this is my husband, King Ulrich. The little man bowed and then waved at Ulrich. Hi, King. Ulrich waved back. It is a pleasure to meet you, Ambassador. May I ask the honor of knowing your name? Oh, yes, the little man replied. <laughs> Silly me. My name is Mugen. Mercy felt a small pain in her heart hearing the young man's name as she remembered another friend she had lost long ago. I think that's a wonderful name, she said. Thank you, replied Mugen. I was named after my brother. He was a great gully hero. I know that he was. The other people in the room slowly returned to their conversations. Daniel once again closed the great doors. Spectacle kind of you know, surprising now. Everybody's seen him. They're having a chat. Uh, Queen Mercy, asked Mugen. Do you know Artemis Silverstar? Is she here too? Looking around the room. Hello, Yuri. With a smile and a nod, Mercy said, Yes, Artemis is the lady of the temple here in Serenity. Not far away at all. If you would like, I can send for her and ask her to come here to the keep so you can give us your message together. Oh, yes, please, replied Mugen excitedly. That would be very great. With a chuckle, he added, this is way easier than I thought it was going to be. 
Mercy found she loved the sight of Mugen's smile. He had what seemed to be a very innocent and childlike soul. Yet his physique, his weapons, and the way he moved showed the skill and training of an experienced warrior. He was the perfect person to be the son of her friend Fig. Suddenly, Mugen raised his hand high above his head, clearly having something to say. You'd be like, ooh, ooh, or ooh, ooh, me, ooh, ooh. Um, yes, Mugen? Percy asked. Oh, my goodness. Ooh, he said hurriedly. I almost forgot it something. Phew. I have two messages to deliver. I'm to give the other one message to a Seraph Bloodborne. Do you know him? Mercy froze, and her heart cold. No. That wasn't possible. Mercy had not seen or spoken to Fig in almost 20 years, well before Seraph was born. New Gully, the land where Fig and his people called home, was inside what was known as a dead magic zone. As su Magic all, in all forms did not work there. As such, nearly any and all creatures avoided it. That meant it was cut off from the outside world. There was no reason in the world that Fig should know that Seraph even existed, and it would be even more impossible for him to know Seraph's full name. Imagine that. How in the world would Fig know that? Mercy was very careful to choose her next words wisely. Yes, Mugen. Seraph is Lady Artemis's son. I can ask him to come as well. Oh, wonderful! Mugen clapped excitedly. I'm doing so good! Figgy will be so proud of me. Of course, Mercy said, forcing a smile. Uh, excuse me while I make those arrangements. Uh, Ulrich, dear, would you mind? Of course, my dear, Ulrich replied. Mercy knew he could see something was wrong. No one could read her as well as he could. Uh, come, Mugen, let's get you something to eat. Then I can introduce you to our other guests. Mercy stepped over to the side of the room where Shayla stood waiting. She led Shayla into the next room where they could speak privately. Once alone, Mercy said, I need you to do something very quickly, but without making any scene or drawing attention. Of course, Your Highness, Shayla replied. Good. Send word to the temple at once, as fast as possible. Send someone we trust. They must speak with Artemis directly and must deliver this exact message. Shayla nodded that she was ready. It is imperative that Artemis and Seraph come to the keep immediately. There is someone here that may affect his path. Once Mercy was sure Shayla had the instructions memorized, she added one more. She was to send another to Dandy with the exact same message. Dandy would understand. Once Shayla had left the room, Mercy took a moment to gather herself. What did all of this mean? Why now? There was no way it could be a coincidence. Taking a deep breath, she opened the door and returned to the Great Hall. So, you can imagine with this crazy as things are, remember Mercy, Artemis, Darsh, and Dandy have knowledge of basically the future. 
And there's things that they're watching for. They don't know how it's going to happen. They don't know when or where, but they're watching for something. Because when, when it comes, they have to be ready for it. So you can imagine anytime anything slightly abnormal happens, you're like, is it? Thing? In Mercy's private sitting room, they gathered. Uh, uh, they gathered. Mercy sat next to Artemis and Dandy. The three women had met a few minutes before, and Mercy, Mercy had shared what she'd learned. Uh, what she knew. Also there was Draven and Seraph, as well as Deacon. Seraph had invited Deacon without asking his mother. Knowing what she did of the future, Artemis agreed to let him come as well. Finally, sitting in a chair by himself was a little Mugen. It was clear he was uncomfortable as he sat there with everyone staring at him. Mercy introduced each one of them to Mugen. To each, he politely said hello. Once all were known, Mercy spoke. Well, Mugen, this is everyone you asked for, and more. If it's okay, may we have your letters? Oh, sure, Mugen exclaimed excitedly. Happy to have something to do again. Taking off his little backpack, he unfastened the small bedroll and began digging through the bag's contents. Everyone sat quietly, staring in curiosity as the little man pulled things out and piled them on the chair. Some things were recognizable. A dented tin can, flint and steel, some more clothes. Others were small bags and bottles and flasks of items unrecognizable. Mercy smiled at Mugen's warhammer leaning against the wall. She recognized it as the one Fig had carried for years, an item of no small magical power. Aha! exclaimed Mugen. Here's one! Pulling out a tube, he walked over and handed the metal tube to Mercy. She looks at it. It was very thick and heavy. She'd never seen anything quite like it. Mugen goes, and she see, finds that the end would unloosen. He's like, ah, good. Walking back to his bag, he began digging again. Don't worry, it's in here somewhere. Um, excuse me, Mr. Mugen, Seraph asked. I do not know your father, and I don't know how he'd know me. Why would he send a letter to me? Mugen looked up for just a moment. Huh? Oh, no, 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 this letter's not from Figgy. This is a letter from Dina. Seraph's chair nearly shattered. So quickly did he rise and send it falling backwards. In a second, he'd come around the table to stand next to Mugen. Whoa! cried out Mugen. Dang you fast! What, you scare a guy? That's not nice! Come on now! Sarah's voice quivered as he spoke. You said it was from Dina? Yep, said Mugen, returning to his bag. Ah, there it is! In his hands, he pulled out another tube. He looked up at Seraph, and his eyes narrowed shrewdly. Are you sure you're Seraph, Bloodborne? Promise to only give this to him. Seraph's voice was barely more than a whisper. Yes, please. I swear I'm the man you seek. Please, may I have it? Mugen could hear the anguish in Seraph's voice and saw the tears at the corner of his eyes. Here you go, he said as he handed it over. Seraph wasted no time in opening the tube and unrolling the parchments inside. He was relieved she was alive, but frightened what he might find inside.
Would you like to see what Mugen looks like? Now, this picture will likely generate some questions. I will get to them. Promise. One in particular. This is Mugen. And if you check the mini for Fig, you'll see that's the exact same Warhammer that Fig carries. I'm going to leave that up for just a minute here. I'll make it a little bit smaller, but I'm going to leave it up for a minute so you can see what Mugen looks like. As we begin reading in his letter. My dearest Seraph, the letter began. I pray this letter finds its way to you. If anyone can get it to you, it's Mugen. Before all else, I must tell you my love for you is as strong as ever. and never meant to leave you wondering. The events of the past few months have left me questioning everything in my life. Everything but you. I was awoken by my uncle late at night. I was told we were in danger and I must dress quickly. I did as I was told while my uncle grabbed and packed a few of my things. There were no lights on in our home and I was led through the back door of my grandfather's shop. Outside I was loaded into a wagon where my grandparents already were hiding amongst our possessions. It all happened so fast. Before I knew it, we were outside of the city, heading south. All that my family would tell me is that we were being chased, and that if we were caught, we would find a fate worse than death. I did not want to leave. I didn't want to go without you, but I feared for my family's safety. Weeks we spent, always on the run, barely stopping to rest. It was all so confusing. No one would tell me where we were going or what was chasing us. Even worse, though, my uncle and grandfather were always arguing, angry, sometimes calling each other names I didn't even know. Dina's letter then goes on to describe the events over the next the rest of the trip south. After weeks of travel, though, their pursuers had finally caught up. They were on the edge of a dark and swampy land to their west. The broken ground made travel difficult, and the sky to the west was dark and foreboding. And they all felt an uncomfortable feeling coming from that direction. Suddenly, Dina, suddenly Dina's uncle cried out a warning. A large group of men, about 15 to 20, could be seen on the horizon behind them on horseback, moving in their direction very fast. They moved the wagon as quickly as possible, but there was no way they could run, outrun them. Dina's uncle, who rode uh, separately on a horse of his own, prepared to try and buy them some time. Suddenly, about that time, they came across an ancient road headed due west. So imagine that. They're heading south through rocks and messed up ground. They see swamp. And then suddenly, there's a road leading right through the swamp to the right. It would be right to them. They're heading south, the west, right? Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, it was old and made of a solid black material they'd never seen. Even more odd, faded white lines seemed to have been painted down its center. It was in better shape than the swamp and rock that was around that area, so Dina's grandfather pulled hard and the wagon pulled the wagon hard onto it and went west at a much faster pace. Almost immediately, Dina and her family felt the difference in the air. Everything felt so strange. Heavier, even. With no other choice, 
they kept moving. Eventually, though, the pursuers still caught up. They thought they had a chance of getting away when they hit a hole. <clears throat> Excuse me. And one of the wheels of their wagon broke. Dina's uncle prepared for battle, while the others were told to flee on foot. There was no way he could stop them all, and there was nowhere for the family to run. It seemed all was lost as Dina heard her uncle's sword parry a blow behind her. But then they were there. The little people, as Dina called them. Nearly 100 of the fierce warriors became charging, began charging from all directions. How they'd still stayed so well hidden, she had no idea. Imagine that. Like, just immediately, out from behind rocks and holes and ditches, because there's ditches, just phew, a wave of a hundred gully dwarves that look like Mugen. I'm going to go ahead and lower that picture a little bit. Many of them formed a ring around Dina and her grandparents, and others joined her uncle against the attackers. The leader of the little people was an older gnome who had a limp. The air was filled with loud, noisy explosions. Whatever kind of magic they were using, Dina's pursuers began to fall to it quickly. Some tried to escape, but were cut down by the small folk. None of them made it out. When it was all done, they met King Fig, the leader of the gullies. Dina's uncle thanked them for their help. The king also agreed to fix their wagon and lead them a faster and safer way south. While polite and friendly, Fig made it clear they were not welcome to stay. Imagine that. Fig is a tinker gnome at heart. He's raised by dwarves, but he's still a tinker gnome. But he's like, what, you got a busted wagon? Yeah, we got metal and wood. We can fix that pretty quickly. You know, so scroungers is what they are, right? That's their gully's natural ability is to scrounge and survive where nobody else can. So finding metal and wood and stuff to be able to hammer it in, weld it in, and Fig has a lot of that more organized now. It'd be easy to get the wagon fixed pretty quickly. As the wagon was being repaired, Dina spent time talking to Mugen, the king's son. She spoke of her life, and she spoke of Serenity, of Seraph, and of his mother. It was when Dina spoke the name Artemis that Fig, who had been listening, in, interrupted, then be asking her some questions. Soon, the wagon was repaired, and Dina's family prepared to leave. Fig came to them then saying that night was approaching and travel would be too dangerous in the dark. Big's people led them to a safe place where they could camp for the night, a dry spot in the swampy area. He said they would return with supplies the next morning that would help them on their journey, and then left some of his people to protect them while they slept. And imagine, they haven't had a good night's sleep in forever. They survived this nearly death situation, and here's a bunch of little dudes saved their last, and they're like, yeah, we'll take care of you. Rest, get your horses rest. By God, they need it. You've been running them for, for, for weeks at this point. True to his word, Fig returned the next morning with Mugen and food for their trip. Fig then surprised them by saying he would be sending Mugen to Serenity, a fact Mugen was surprised to learn as well. Fig said he would see that Seraph learned that she was safe. Dina begged to send this letter. Her family were not happy with the option, but after all she'd been put, been put through, they'd agreed. So that was just a summary of what was in the letter. He's reading it, but I'm giving you a summary of what was in the letter. The letter finally ended with the following words. 
As I write this even now, my family calls that we need to leave. We are headed to the city of Arduel, where a ship waits to take us to the east, to where they will not tell me. I will finish this by telling you that I love you. My heart is yours and always will be. No matter what happens, I promise I will try to find my way back to you. Please, do not give up on me. Forever yours, Tina. Seraph read the letter a second time, then handed it to Deacon. Everyone could see he was playing in his everything he'd read over in his mind. He looked Deacon in the eyes as his friend handed him back the letter. He stood there only a moment, and then, without a word, turned and left the room. Draven and Artemis rose as well, and, excusing themselves, left after him hurriedly. Mugen looked around, confused. Did I do a wrong? No, smiled Mercy. You did a very good job. Mugen smiled while she continued. Deacon, would you mind showing Mugen to his room and see that he is settled? He'll be staying in your old room. Deacon had moved to a private residence his father had purchased the year before, living with several servants and personal guards. You can imagine that. He's now late teens, almost, he's probably late. Age-wise, Seraph is at the point where he's about, he's 19, 19 almost 20. Um, Deacon is two, year, two years younger than him. So he's around 16, almost 17. So he's got his own place now with Fire Moon would have purchased them. Instead of him living in the castle with Smallsius, Smallsius went back and now he's old enough that he's there being overseen, but he's got his own residence. Uh, so Deacon moved from Mugen's eyes open wide. I get to sleep in the castle? He asked. Of course, Mercy replied. You are a guest. And I get my own room? Yes, for as long as you would like. Oh, thank you, the little gully exclaimed as he began cramming his gear back into his pack. Once everything was inside, he followed Deacon out of the room, thanking Mercy over and over as he left. Left alone, Mercy and Dandy opened Fig's letter and began to read. My dearest friends, I hope this letter finds you well. From what I've been told this from this from what I've been told by this Dina lass, you've both been made quite the names for yourselves. I'm, I I feel bad. I'm not going to read this in a Scottish accent, but I wrote it in a Scottish accent. <laughs> I just realized that because dwarves always have a Scottish accent, and he was raised by dwarves, so Fig always had a dwarvish accent. I'm not doing it, but I realize I wrote it in a dwarvish. Ye were both. That's my thing. Okay. Uh, by this Dina lass, you've you both made quite the names for yourselves. I'm not surprised. You were both always meant for greatness. I'll be honest when I tell you I'm not happy to be writing this letter. But it seems events have conspired against me, and I need your help. Dina tells me that she and Artemis's son are sweethearts, and the girl is in quite a pickle. She and her friends came into our land chased by killers. I mean that. The men who hunted them were well-trained. Had we not had the numbers we did while out scavenging that day, things would have been much, much worse. As it is, I lost too many of my folk to them, as it was. But some of the gullies did not survive. I'll tell you the truth of it, though it shames me to admit it. I wasn't going to help them. I was content to let the humans deal with their own matters, then hopefully leave our land. 
I knew Dina and her folk had no chance, but I wasn't willing to endanger my folk for them. It seems fate decided it wasn't up to me. My son Mugen is a good boy. He's a head smarter, stronger, and faster than the average gully. Takes after his old man, he does. He surprisingly has a head for numbers, of all things, though struggles with reading and writing. From his mother, he got the gully's hardiness, good survival instincts. My boy has a big heart. And seeing Dina's family as they were, he didn't hesitate to charge to their defense. Our people did not hesitate to follow him. He made the right choice, I know. But he did so in ignorance. He's never seen the way our people are treated on the outside. He's never seen one race enslave another. He doesn't understand why it's so important to protect our folk. Mugen will be a great king one day, but first he needs to learn the dangers and the evils that threaten us here. The fact that of all the people could have come to us, it was the beloved of my friend's son? Well, it seems that, e seems that even in my home protected, the gods still find a way to meddle in my life. I can think of no better or safer place for me, boy, than with you two. Please take care of him, and teach him what you can until he's ready to come home. I don't want to lose him, too. Also, if you ever see Darsh or Dandy, tell that big lout and little sticky fingers, they too are in my thoughts. Sincerely, your friend Fig. Mercy and Dandy discussed Fig's letters. So Dina's family was being hunted by someone. Neither could think of a reason why, and Fig's letter gave no clues to who it might be. They agreed with Fig, though. The timing of Dina's arrival and her connection to Seraph was all too, in or all too convenient. The great game of the gods had begun, and nothing could be taken for granted. Was Mugen a chosen player? Was Dina? Was this all part of the right path or the wrong path? There were too many unanswered questions, and it felt like time was running out. Wow, from a timing point of view, this is working out really well. <laughs> Sorry. Take just a quick pause there to wet my whistle. Um, I know you, there's some folks here listening today, and I hope that you are enjoying the story so far. Um, it is it was a lot of fun to write, and... I did want to interject and say that Mugen is the only part of all of this I didn't have. For, for a long time, I needed to connect Dina going, Seraph going after her. Couldn't figure out how to connect that. That's not the big thing I struggled with, but it was something I struggled with. And then one day, I was looking over stuff, and Mugen popped into my head. And I'm like, that's how I connect this. It was... Uh, it was it was awesome, and I adore Mugen. He is very easily one of the my favorite NPCs I've ever created, um, and I've got so much planned for him. So uh, hopefully you like him too. You like Mugen too? Okay, good deal, good deal. All right. Well, want to interject there for a second, take a little breath before I jump into the next stuff, because um, there's still a bunch more. Okay. I have to go after her, yelled Seraph. You will not, yelled back Draven. The two had been arguing for quite some time. They, along with Artemis, were in Artemis and Draven's private quarters in the temple. 
She attempted to calm them both with no success, barely able to get a word in. She and Draven had each had a chance to read Dina's letter. They both understood the danger she was in, but too they knew the dangers that existed for Seraph out in the world as well. Even worse, Draven's fear of, and search for, the man in the hat kept him from even considering such a venture. That puts Artemis in a really bad spot, right? Draven, at this point, his life is dedicated to two things. Protecting his son, finding and killing the man in the hat. Two things are connected. That's the threat to his son. As long as he's out there, my son is not safe. I can't let you go wandering the world. Here is where I can keep you safe. I understand the situation, but he's out there. Well, Artemis is standing there knowing that he's not the problem. And that potentially there's actually something worse out there. But still, and she knows more than that she can't say. She can't do that, running the risk of damaging what could come ahead. She's having to stand there and watch this, knowing she could just throw information out and make it a lot easier for probably a lot of them, but she can't. Um... While Artemis knew the truth, she could not share it. Even now, she had to wonder if the events around her were the correct path for her son, and she worried how her knowledge may actually be endangering him. I know she means a lot to you, but you cannot run after her with just the name of a city and hope for the best. There are people in Arduel we can reach out to for help. There is no time, yelled Seraph. Even now, this letter is over a month old. She may already be captured and just blindly running in after her could do the same to you, yelled back Draven. I assure you the men chasing Dina pale in comparison to the demons who are hunting you. They'd love nothing more than to catch you out there unprotected. And when they do, you'll die. You must put your own life first for now, Seraph. You are no good to anyone dead. The two men stood only a couple feet apart. Artemis wrung her hands in frustration, desperately trying to think of a way to de-escalate the situation. And what good will that do? screamed Seraph. How long should I plan to be a prisoner locked within these walls? Ten years? A hundred? A thousand? At what point will I be free to live my own life? As I want, instead of as a treasure locked away from those who would steal it. How long must I hide behind my parents, afraid of some boogeyman? He is no boogeyman. Draven's voice was so loud it hurt Artemis's ears. He is more powerful than any demon I met across the plains. He is out there right now and he wants to take your life. You must stay here until I can deal with him. You must stay here where I can protect you from him. And why is that? retorted Seraph. You couldn't protect me from him last time. Artemis barely saw Draven's hand move. He was so quick. But the slap echoed throughout the room. Artemis gasped. Draven had slapped his son hard enough to spin his head to the side. When Draven spoke next, his voice was little more than a growl. Enough. The matter is settled. I will do what I can for her, for her from here. 
But for now you will stay and you will do as you are told. Sarah's head slowly turned back until he was once again looking his father in the eyes. Artemis could see how red the side of his face was. could see a small bit of blood on his lips. No, he said. I will not. Again, Draven's hand moved, and inside Artemis screamed. How? How could it have come to this? How could it be the two people she loved most in the world had come to the point of violence? How could this be happening? But there was no slap. And no sound was made. Draven's hand had stopped mere inches from Sarah's face. Sarah's hand was wrapped around his wrist. Two men stood there, frozen. On Draven's face, a look of surprise. But after a moment, it turned to a look of confusion. Artemis didn't know why at first. Herself frozen in place. But then she realized Raven was trying to pull his hand away from his son. Not only that, he was straining with the effort to do so. Raven's strength was unequal. Artemis had never seen anyone come close. Yet now he stood here, struggling to pull his hand free of his son's grasp. And he couldn't move it an inch. Sarah's hand didn't even tremble. Artemis never quite knew what Draven meant to do next. Looked like he meant to raise his other hand, or whether to pull Sarah's hand away, or what, she would never know. Seraph moved first. Though he moved so fast, Artemis didn't see it. Seraph's other arm shot out, striking his father's chest with his open palm pushing him. And then Draven was in the air. He backwards nearly six feet before crashing into the bookshelf built into the wall behind him. He struck it with enough force to smash it as he fell to the ground, landing on his behind books and knickknacks from the broken shells fell onto him and then onto the floor. Draven sat there, coughing, the wind completely knocked out of him. After a moment, he looked up, still struggling to catch his breath. Seraph stood there before him, looking down at his father. Artemis hadn't even seen him move. One moment he stood on one side of the room, an instant later, the other. He stood there, looking down at Draven. There was no anger in his face. In fact, his face was cold, devoid of all emotions. Will never sung me, said. Seraph turned to face Artemis, bowed his head politely. Turning again, made his way to the door and out of the room, pushing past Percy and the other Templars, who had just burst in, weapons drawn. The Templars stopped and stood in silence as they surveyed the room. Did he? Percy asked. Everything is fine, Percy, Draven said, slowly getting to his feet. 
I felt lightheaded and for a moment, and I fell over. I'm okay now. Percy gave Artemis a puzzled look as she stepped to Draven and helped him up. Are you sure, my lady? Percy asked again. Yes, Percy, Artemis replied, her face reddened in embarrassment. I'll look after him. That will be all, thank you. Percy looked first to Draven, then to Artemis. Bowing, said, of course, we shall be across the hall. If you need anything at all. And Percy then ushered the other Templars out of the room. Artemis had no doubt Percy had known exactly what really happened. He was just too kind and loyal to question her. Seeing Draven was okay, Artemis said, I'll go talk to him. No, said Draven. Give him time. This is all my fault. Should have never struck him. Get out in anger? Served better than that. Give him time. Seraph is a smart young man. You'll see we only have his best interests at heart. I'll reach out to my contacts immediately and get word to Arduel. He sees that we're serious about helping Dina. I understand this is for the best. Raven and Artemis looked at the shattered bookshelves and broken things on the floor. To be honest, there's something else I'm more concerned with. What is that? asked Artemis. What in the world could be worse than this? Draven looked at her, very concerned looked on his face. He's faster than me. And he's stronger. Never seen him move like that, or to have such strength. Either he's been holding back in his training, hiding his abilities from me, or more likely, Seraph has yet to truly unlock his full capabilities. The fact that he's gained them while angry. They embraced and Artemis stood there in his arms. What did all of this mean? What did, uh, what did this all say about his future? The two were lost in thought, though their concerns were quite different. What were they to do now? So Sarah's been training with Draven since he could basically move. The man knows how to fight. Got the skill, he's got the speed, has his father's blood in him. But the common thing to consider is, well, he's also half-elven, which technically is weaker than Draven's two bloodlines, half-vampire, half half-demon that he has. So how is it that Seraph is stronger Technically, you'd think the elven blood would help dilute some of that, which you would normally see in Dungeons and Dragons. A half elf's abilities are half of what an elves are, for vision to resistance to spells and such. So, how is it that Seraph is stronger? There's concerns there. The vampire side of him, technically, might have been somewhat weakened or diluted by mixing with elven blood. But demon blood is special. Demons pass along abilities and skills within, technically, their DNA that do not pop out for generations. Abilities that none have ever had before. And then demon blood mixing with all these others, well, that might cause a, uh, a mixture that would explode, if you will. 
So that's a concern. That at this point, he's not just stronger, but quite a bit stronger than Draven is, even though he may not have realized it himself. Alright, we'll now continue. So she's being chased, but no one knows who, or by who, asked Maeve. Deacon nodded. From the letter, it would seem her father does not, or her father family does, but they won't tell her. How odd, commented Petal. You'd think knowing your enemy would only be more helpful. Deacon was gathered with Maeve, Petal, Artis, Ran, and Maeve's brother Tyrion. He had told them of Dina's letter and what he'd read inside. They were all Seraph's friend, and he wanted them to understand what Seraph was going through. After the previous afternoon's events, this is the next day, technically, Seraph had gone to his room speaking to no one or allowing no one in. Deacon was very worried about his friend. Artemis and Draven were worried as well. For his protection, Seraph's room had no windows to the outside. It's always been that way. You don't want a man in a hat just popping through your window. He had a room that's internal to the temple. And you'd have to pass multiple Templars to reach one, uh, one of the doors. Uh, so there wasn't really a lot of worry of him running out. You know what I mean? There's no way, even with speed, he's not going to get past all of those people without somebody noticing him. They did not worry he would disappear, but the more time he spent alone dwelling on things, the worse it may be when he finally came out. As promised, Draven had sent Wern to Arduel through his contacts. It would be days before he heard anything back. He tried to tell Seraph, but there'd been no response when he'd knocked on the young man's door. All his parents could do now was move forward with the events of the Sovereign's visit and hope for the best, making excuses for Seraph's absence. The children were also worried, though they could not really be called children anymore. As young adults, each had taken great strides towards their own life's path. Maeve was happy to see her brother had been working hard as well. Tyrion loved business, and had become indispensable to Darsh and Jorn. It was clear the Fohammer family business would pass into good hands. Tyrion was quite proud of Maeve as well, missing no opportunity to tell that his sister was one of the first paladins of their race. Though they'd spent much of their past years apart, the twins were still very close. When I return home, I will speak to father, Tyrion said. We'll have we have ships all over that area. I'm sure he'll agree to watch out for any signs of Dina and her family. We can offer them safety and escort. There's no safer place in the world for them than on Darshtopia. And I will speak to King Christopher, added Artis. Arduel has long been friends and allies with Serenity. I'm sure he'll be happy to help. The young heroes discussed all of the options they could think of. They all considered Dina a friend and were ready to do whatever was needed. Deacon and Artis shared looks several times. It was clear they were thinking the same thing. Dina was the world to Seraph. Both couldn't help but worry what the young man would do when he finally opened his door. The Sovereign's arrival went exactly as planned. It was quite the spectacle as his caravan passed through the city. The Elven King's personal guard numbered more than 200 of the most trained Elven warriors who lived in Santriel. This was Landrian's first trip outside the Elven Kingdom in over 600 years, 
and his generals were taking no chances. Arriving at the keep, the sovereign was able to meet with all the gathered dignitaries. Each of the children were introduced, and it was clear that all of them were starstruck at the spectacle of the High Elves' visit. You know, because, I mean, the thing is celebrity, right? This is probably the oldest person they'll, they'll ever meet, is what they're thinking, right? Technically, Draven's older, but still. Um, Draven's pretty old, but it's one of those things where this is a big thing. You now he's a king, first one here. He's got all these, all these guards with him. They're all dressed fancy elves and armor like you'd never seen. It's a big deal. There were hours of meetings and speeches and introductions. One particularly interesting event occurred when Landrian was introduced to Mugen. It had been explained to the young Gully who the Sovereign was and why he'd come to Serenity. When it was his turn, the Sovereign did his best to hide his disdain. Like most races, elves considered Gullies little more than a nuisance. With Mugen's wild hair, tattoos, and clothes, he stood out from everyone else who was dressed in the best on their occasion. This fact also had not been missed by Mugen. Mugen introduced himself wow. well, bowing low and smooth. He'd been taught how to do that by his father. He then held out a small, worn cloth bag. I made you this, he said. Everyone was startled. Gifts were not commonly exchanged. But several of the Sovereign's guards inched closer, wary at the gully's tactics. The Sovereign grimaced as he took the dirty little bag, but he was far too dignified to decline it. You imagine that, right? Like, oh, yes, thank you. It's that kind of thing. Pulling out the bag's contents, the elven lord was shocked to find himself holding a small bird. After a moment, his eyes widened. He turned the animal around, examining it. At first, he thought he held the body of a dead animal. But then he came to realize, though, that it was a wooden carving, so detailed and well-made that it seemed lifelike. This is exquisite, Landrian said. And looking down to Mugen, he asked, You made this? Yeah, said Mugen sheepishly. I like to carve birdies. Sovereign smiled down and reached out his hand, took a hold of Mugen's, shook it. This is beautiful. I shall cherish it. The gift and the lesson. Even an old elf occasionally needs reminded that beauty can be found in the places you least expect it. Thank you for your gift, Mugen. Mugen's smile beamed as he shook Landrian's hand. As the elven lord moved on to meet the next person, Mugen poked the man next to him. I did a good, he whispered, a big smile on his face. The afternoon began with a tour of the city by Mercy and Ulrich. Landrian was quite honest about his surprise at Serenity's growth in such a small period of time. He praised the design of the defenses and, a discussion, and discussed trade and business options. He greatly enjoyed the beauty of the park containing the Flame of Serenity. They did not visit the temple. Artemis would provide that to her the next day after her service. Afterwards, they returned to the keep for a great banquet. Mercy had brought in the best cooks and bakers from across the land. She gathered a great stock of ales and wine, so much that no cup could ever run dry. There were... Uh, there were... Wait a minute, wrong page here. Oh, there we are. 
There were bards and musicians, storytellers and jesters. The celebration and entertainment went late into the night. Serenity had spent or had wasted no expense. Mugen was having the time of his life. He'd never seen such things. The food was better than anything he'd ever tasted, and the songs brought him to tears on several occasions. Finally, though, Mercy noticed the young gully was getting tired. Asking if he'd like to return to his room to rest, he happily accepted. Deacon offered to escort him. The prince was feeling unwell and had decided to turn in early. Artemis and Mercy knew it was worry for Seraph that plagued him. Every few hours, a messenger arrived from the temple. Everything was ready for the sovereign's visit tomorrow. No, Seraph had not left his room. No, he'd not touched the food or drink left on the table by the door. Artemis decided that when she got home, she needed to speak with him. She knew he would open the door if she commanded it, though she would hate to do so. Overall, the first day had been a resounding success. Tomorrow they would visit the temple, and then Landrian would sign the documents making it part of the southern kingdoms. It had been a long, hard road to get here, but finally it would pay off. Finally, things were going right. So, everything's going smooth. <laughs> I think we all know when about that time has to happen, right? <laughs> I mean, most of you have been listening to me tell this tale for a very, very long time. Uh, so I would hope that sometimes you guys pick up on some of the things I've Sometimes I plant seeds for later in the story. Sometimes I get to develop those seeds. It's always fun to see who picks up on which ones. Uh, who is surprised at which ones were technically seeds. Excited to see what you guys think. I'm saying today. And eventually. It's about time you got here, Deacon said. A candle on a nearby table lit magically. The prince sat on his bed, still fully dressed. Sarah smiled. Still sure you want to go? Deacon waved his hand, batting away Sarah's foolishness. Of course, he replied. If I don't, you'll just end up getting yourself killed. We both know you're practically useless without me. The two, the two young men chuckled as Deacon pulled out his packed travel bag from underneath his bed. Strapping his weapons to it tightly to limit any sounds they may make, he then added a couple of last-minute items. Ashley says, may or not say about that time when we watch movies and we know something's going to That's awesome. That would be awesome if you did that. <laughs> Seraph saw the letter rolled next to the candle, sealed with wax and Deacon's signet. Seeing him notice it, Deacon asked, Did you leave them anything? Yes, Seraph replied. I left something. Finally finished, the two prepared to exit the window. The two had snuck out this way a hundred times. Seraph was easily able to scale the wall with Deacon on his back. Are you sure about this next part? Deacon asked as he climbed on Seraph's back. I have no choice, replied Seraph. You'll need the help. I don't know anyone else who can do so. Going quiet, the two became a single shadow, moving down the side of the building. Wasting no time, they were off the second their feet touched the ground. They had one more stop to make.
Ashley says, called it. <laughs> what? Some things have to be predictable, right? Can't hide everything. <laughs> to say he was startled would be a gross understatement. Waking up to find Seraph and Deacon standing in his room in the darkness, he couldn't keep from yelling out, Ah! Hey! What did I tell you about scaring a guy? That's not nice! Seraph put his fingers to his lips. Mugen hushed. The look on Seraph's face was serious. Mugen knew something was wrong. I'm sorry, Mugen, Seraph replied. I did not mean to frighten you. I just needed to speak to you privately. Mugen looked at Seraph and then at Deacon. Then back to Seraph. You want Deacon to leave? Deacon put his hand over his mouth to hide his smile. Uh, no, replied Seraph. Deacon needs to be here, too. Mugen gave Deacon a thumbs up. He said you can stay. You good. Deacon nodded, fighting back his laughter. Uh, yes, continued Seraph. I've come to ask for your help. Dina is in trouble. Mugen nodded sadly. Yeah, those bad guys. Dina's uncle said there'd be more. I offered to protect her on her trip, but her uncle said no. Seraph smiled. Seemed everything this little man said made him like him even more. Yes, said Seraph. Deacon and I are going to find her. We're going to bring her home to Serenity, where we can protect her. That's a really good idea, replied Mugen. There's lots of big people to help you look after her. Plus, I know she really wants to be where you are. His words tugged at Seraph's heart. Exactly, Mugen. My parents don't want me to go. They think it's too dangerous for me. But I can't just sit here while she's out there. I have to find her. That's why I'm here. We don't know that land. I can find your trail and find her. Tears welled up in Seraph's eyes. You don't know me. You don't owe me anything. You are also a guest here, only newly arrived. But you're the only one who knows where that trail is. I don't think I can find it in time on my own. Can you please show me the way? Mugen looked into Seraph's eyes for a moment. Thought. He then reached out and took Seraph's hand, patting it gently. Before I left, he said, I have big talk with Figgy. He the king, but he my dad too. I asked him, why he's sending me away? You were bad? Figgy said, no. He said he sent me because I do good. Because he know he can trust me. A very big, important job. Figgy smiled at me. Figgy don't smile very often. Pretty big deal. I was still worried, though. I'd never left New Gully before. Since little boy Figgy tells stories of all the scary monsters and bad people that would want to hurt me and the gullies. I ask, what do I do if I don't know what to do? What do I do if I get lost and I can't find home? Figgy gave me a big hug. Trust me, Figgy hugs even less than he smiles. 
He poked my chest and say, Follow your heart, silly gully. When you lost or have to make big pick, follow your heart. Biggie says, heart never lead to Rome. Dina is Seraph's heart. Seraph is hers. Mugen's heart tell him to help Seraph get his heart back. That is what I will do. Seraph felt the tears fall as he embraced the little gully. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Mugen was surprised by the embrace, and more so by Seraph's words. I want you to imagine this. He's hugging and Mugen's like, oh. He's patting the back like, oh. Yes! Friends! Mugen has friends! Ha! Yes! The little man hopped out of the bed and began packing his things quickly and quietly. Do you think you can find your trail? Find your trail again? asked Deacon. Sure, said Mugen, pointing southeast. It starts 1,584,293 steps directly that way. Seraph and Deacon just looked at him, shocked. Mugen shrugged his shoulders absently. Biggie says I have a head for numbers. It long trips, so I counted. Within a few minutes, Seraph had once again climbed the keep's walls, and the three men made their way through the alleys and back streets of the city. As late as it was, the streets were mostly clear, and they, but they took no chances. Twenty minutes later, they stood at the base of Serenity's outer wall. Seraph and Deacon had found this spot years earlier. Even with the extra security caused by the Sovereign's visit, there was still a blind spot here, allowing them a one-minute gap to climb it and get over. A few minutes later, the three men were on the other side, being carried by Seraph, who was running as fast as he possibly could. He knew he was going to need as much of a head start as possible. Seraph could track really well. And Deacon's got magic. He's a wild mage as well as a warrior. Basically a dual-classed character at this point. So, if they can find the trail, they've got ways to, to track it. But finding a trail in an area they've never been to that technically goes through and then re-comes back out of an area of dead magic, that's a huge section, because that dead magic zone is big. It's, it's going to take a long time to find that trail going around it. Even for someone as fast as Seraph. So they needed help. Mugen knows that area. He knows that land. He knows, you know, Fig was going to show them the path that would get them south easier. Mugen would probably know that path as well. So he'd know exactly where they'd at least come out of the dead magic zone. That information greatly speed up their chances of catching up to Dina and her family. So, Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen become a party of three, adventuring out to catch up and hopefully save and bring Dina. We're not done. I'm just reviewing. We're actually almost to the part that I finished writing, which is great, because we can go over the stuff I didn't write yet, but I, I didn't have time to get on paper, but I already know how it goes. Which is good, because we're not to the part I wanted to stop at, and I was afraid we wouldn't get there. Um, when I write a lot of stuff like this, it takes up a lot of pages. But as I'm just reading it, it's easier. 
I would like to take just a brief aside to ask you folks watching, whether it's today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road, or if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, you want to leave a review or, or shoot me a message on my website, onlydraven.com, whatever. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you like it when I have reading like this? Or do you prefer me to bullet point and just riff? I can do both. Sometimes there's specific things I want to say. So getting it on paper, I feel, makes it a little easier. Even though I've already, as I've been telling this, I've altered things that I've written down to flow better or changed in a smidge that I wrote down wrong or something like that. But I'd be interested to see if anybody has a preference uh, versus the more me just telling the story from memory kind of set or reading stuff that's written down, basically and making part of this an audio book at that point. So, um, you know, just interested if anybody has a preference or a thought or if they like one more or the other. So just, just thought I'd ask, throwing that out there. I will continue. It doesn't matter if you read or not. Okay, <laughs> as, long as, as long as you're getting the story, right? Okay. Artemis and Draven knew something was wrong immediately. The Templar that would normally be standing at the base of the stairs leading to their rooms wasn't there. That type of thing did not happen. They quickly made their way upstairs, Draven leading. At every location a Templar was stationed, no one was there. As they reached the upper floor, where their chambers are, they saw that Seraph's door was still closed. Draven, though, could hear the sounds within. Draven also has that super good hearing, right? The door was not locked, and upon opening it, they found to their horror nine Templars on the floor, gagged and bound and tied tightly. Percy, who'd been traveling with them, because he was a bodyguard, I, I forgot to mention that, Percy's there too. Draven and Percy immediately began cutting the men free, then moved quickly to Artemis's chambers. I call them Artemis's chamber. Draven and Artemis are married. They live there, but everybody views it as Artemis's chamber, because it was hers first. She's the lady of the temple. It's her room. But I mean, they both live there. I, did, I, I wanted to clarify that. It's their room, but everybody calls it Artemis' chamber, as do I. And Draven don't give a damn. Me or that Draven. Um, all seemed normal in the room, except they saw the small box on the bed. Piece of paper folded next to it. Artemis opened the box. Inside, where normally sat Draven's magical amulet that protected the wearer from being found magically, Instead, now sat a small necklace with a blood-red tear-shaped gem, the one Seraph was never without. Uh, I love the way you tell it, open to questions, able to explain it. I love to. Yeah, I love, I love that. When you guys have questions to clarify, sometimes, I mean, it makes the story better because other people in the future may be thinking the same thing you're thinking. And I do my best to try to come at the story. I'm interrupting myself, I know, but bear with me. Whenever I'm writing a story or telling a story, I try to come at it from the point of view that whoever's listening doesn't know anything about Dungeons & Dragons. That it's just a fantasy story. So when I do mention D&D things, I try to point to specific, this is a D&D thing, but this is how it would work regularly, uh, comparing it to movies and things like I did earlier with Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Sometimes makes it easier for someone who doesn't know D&D or could care less about D&D still be able to understand the stories it's going. Um, and sometimes I forget that I've been playing Merged Worlds for so long and writing it that I know all this stuff 
And some of that I've never had the opportunity to share. Or it came out while we were playing the game, so the players knew it, but it wasn't really important to the retelling of the story. So when you're asking a question, sometimes I'm like, don't, I should have explained that when I got to that point. So I appreciate anytime somebody has questions or feedbacks about Worms, but please, for the love of God, throw it at me uh, during these streams or even afterwards, you know, in the Discord or the email or whatever. Um, because that could be information other people could really use as well that I just forgot you don't know. <laughs> I try to be really good about that, but there are times that I will miss them, I'm sure. Uh, but where was I? <clears throat> okay, so inside that box, remember, remember way back on the adventure to defeat Draven's brother. There were three artifacts they had to have: the crystal dagger. I know who has that. That doesn't make him happy. The second one is the sunstone they stole from the uh, Kingdom of Dark Moon. Part of the reason he doesn't like them that much. And the third one, which was actually the second one they got, was an amulet from the wind caves that they went to get. While they were gone, that's when Draven's brother attacked tribals. But it was an amulet that, while wearing it, the wearer cannot be tracked or found magically. Uh, and that's how Draven was able to hide his presence as they got closer to his brother. That was its purpose, was to hide him. Because you know his brother's going to be looking for him. He doesn't know who else he may have with them or anybody. But he's going to be looking for his brother. And the magician of that power may have a way of finding him. So he needed a way to hide that. That amulet probably takes it when he travels and things on occasion when he needs to. But when he's at home and he doesn't need to be wearing it, it sits in a little box in their room. Their room is one of the safest places in the kingdom. No one goes into Artemis's room that shouldn't be in there. So it normally sits there. Seraph has taken it. I'm sure you can understand why. Last thing he wants is anyone tracking him at this point for two reasons. One, he does understand that there's a threat out there that wants to kill him. He's not an idiot. He just doesn't care right now. There are bigger things at stake to him. But putting that on protects him from hopefully anybody back in Serenity tracking him down and forcing him to come home. At the same time, it will also give him hopefully some protection from those things that are out there that are searching for him as well. Most things think he's in Serenity. But he has to know that eventually it's going to become known that he's not there anymore. Right? It's not possible. He's just going to know he's not going to be noticed for a year. He does things. I said he worked and saved for two years to, to be able to get her ring made. He took jobs. He worked here and there, cutting wood for somebody. You can imagine him pulling a Captain America wood thing, right? Like he's sitting there just ripping wood apart to help these people out. And they're like, yeah, I'll give you a couple of coppers for that. You just, that's a day's work you just knocked out in 30 minutes. Yeah, I'll throw you a couple of coppers for that. So you can imagine he'd been taking small jobs to try to raise money. He gets an allowance, I'm sure. But he wants to get more. He wants to make something nice. Plus, you got to imagine he's thinking about the uh, repercussions of her saying yes to that ring and what the cost may be after that, right? Um, so inside the box where that amulet was, now a different necklace. Very thin silver chain. The blood red crystal teardrop on the end. And some of you may remember where that came from. Draven has a magic, it's an ability that he can do that creates that. Gives him the ability to do a couple things. One, track the wearer, or speak to the wearer slightly depending on distance. Uh, almost like a, an ESP or a telepathy kind of thing. Um, when Draven went through the portal and Artemis and them assumed he died, when she opened up the packet that had the prophecy on it, inside of that were two necklaces, just like the one he'd given her originally. She and Seraph had always worn one. I mean, they didn't put it on the baby. 
Don't put a necklace on a baby. They're going to choke themselves. But once he's old enough to wear the necklace, he can wear the necklace. And he's probably never taken it off since. So the fact that I've taken off this thing that lets my father find me and taken the thing that makes it harder for my father to find me. You can see he's taken some steps there. Where was I? I'm sorry. Okay. So it's the one he was never without. She picked up the piece of paper and looked at it, and all that it said on it, Father would have done the same for you. To, no from, all it says is Father would have done the same for you. Damn it, growled Draven, as he quickly began grabbing things he would need. He wouldn't need much. He had no doubt Seraph would have taken Deacon with him, which would have slowed him down. Slowed down their progress. Hopefully, he could catch up quickly. Artemis just stood there, holding the paper, her thoughts racing. She replayed everything that had happened over the last few days and few months. She also remembered words from a warning from the past. I will go immediately, Draven was saying. I should be able to catch him by the dawn. I'm sure they're going southeast, but they might try to go indirectly to throw off pursuit. Either way, it'll only be a matter of time before I... No. Interrupted Artemis. What? Asked Draven. No. Artemis said again. This time more confident and assertive. No. We will let Seraph go. You cannot mean that! Draven exclaimed, walking over to her. You know what's out there! You know what's after him! Yes, replied Artemis, and we have done all that we can to prepare him for it. Seraph was right. We cannot keep him imprisoned here. Seraph has chosen his own path. We must now trust him to walk it. Raven stared at her incredulously. He couldn't believe what he was hearing. Then his eyes narrowed. What is it you're not telling me? There is more to this than you've said. You must trust me in this, she replied. This is what must be done. And do you not think I have the right to know? yelled Draven. Should I not have a say in our son's fate? Artemis grew. Fact. She became furious. And when she spoke, she did not just do so as Artemis. The power and confidence that was Artemis the High Cleric. And how many times, my love, have you kept things from me? How many times have you had knowledge or made choices on behalf of our family without ever consulting me? Artemis's voice grew louder. The identity of the Black Rose, for example. Do I not have the same rights that you are asking for? And now that I ask you to give me the same, Give me the same trust you've always expected me to just give you. Draven was silent, shocked by the power of her words. There was a moment of silence as the two stared at each other. Finally, Draven lowered his head in defeat. You're right. I have made such choices and such omissions. I did what I thought was best, whether you... May agree or not. So be it. 
We will abide by your choice. I shall see the Templars are okay and make sure that no alarm. Returned and began walking to the door, but before he left, he stopped. Turned and he looked back to her just a moment. I do trust you, Arthur. You. The rest of the world. Walked out, slowly closing the door behind. As soon as the door closed, Artemis fell to the bed. The stress of everything that just happened, the choice and the argument she had to have was just too much. All she could do was take a few minutes. Her and Draven never really had a real argument. There we go, Ashley. My choice. It was always my choice. Talk about that for a minute. While she's sitting there crying on the bed, we'll give Artemis a moment. Ashley's pulling back something from the very, very early days of Merged World. When Artemis was given almost a, a little bit of a prophecy. Remember, they all, all of the main heroes got a prophecy at some point. And at one point, uh, Darsh had to fight an arena, learned there was a thing that would poison him, but if he did it wrong, then the, the entire empire would turn against him. Dandy had to fight the thing she loved the most. Turns out, to defeat it turned out to be Michael. Um, Mercy had to fight. Basically, she, in hers, she was a, a warrior, but who used magic, and then ended up leaving uh, how she was raised with a group of people like-minded. Basically, she left what how she was raised and moved on to create Serenity, the kingdom, the way she feels it should be run, kind of thing. But Artemis's was that she was in a land where the world was in plague, and people were dying everywhere. And there was a small child that was dying, and she started to heal them. But then another counterspell was cast, and the child died. And across the way, she saw this old crony-looking person dressed all in black, and she chased her down the sewers, the big thing. They ended up having a big fight, magic fight, her against this evil cleric. When it was all said and done, she went over to turn the cleric over. A robe came open, and she could see the little tat blood teardrop tattoo that she got from Draven's first necklace. And the elven woman grabbed her, shriveled up old, grabbed her hand and said, it was my choice. It was always my choice. That has come back, those words have come back and haunted Artemis multiple times throughout this story. And multiple times she thinks she's made the right choice to avert that future. If that's even a real future, it could be symbolism of a future. But the problem is she keeps finding out that maybe not. Do I let, do I, do I go with Draven or do I not? If I don't, this is what can happen. Do I let Draven kill himself to go back to his home planet? Makes it sound like a sci-fi thing, but you know what I mean. If I don't, this is what could happen. His brother's going to win, kind of, you know? And now we're at this situation. My son one day has to make a choice. And if he ch makes the wrong choice, the world will become a living hell. Every time she thinks she's made that choice, she finds out the next choice is worse. And the consequences of each one only continues to accept. That is a great reference, and that is exactly correct. You're right on the money. It was my choice. That's exactly what she's thinking at this point. Once again, I had to make a choice that could have doomed everyone I love. My son's out there alone, and the world, there's things in the world uber powerful want to kill him, and I just decided to let him go on his own. He also remembers what Deacon from the future said. Son has to find his path. 
There will come a day when your children will want to leave. When that happens, have to let them. So she, in her mind, this is that moment, and she's making the right choice. But is it? Doesn't know. After a few minutes of being on the bed, and gathering, had her cry, and she calmed herself down, dry herself off, cleaned herself up. She goes to the door and opens it. And of course, Percy's standing there. Everything else going on. Percy's not going anywhere more than three feet from Artemis' door. Be that close to Artemis until everything calms down. He's her personal. He's in charge of her personal security, and nine of his dudes just got wrapped up and tied up by Seraph without literally one of them even landing a blow. Not that they really would. He took them all down very quickly. I'll give you an example of what he can do. She goes to Percy. She says. Gather an escort. We're returning to the keep immediately. Lady? He goes, send a message ahead. Let her know that I'm on my way. And I need you to send a message to Dandy as well. He needs to meet us. So she's like, okay. Sure, I'll see to it immediately. Because again, she can travel somewhere as long as he's beside her. He's okay with it. She goes to go back in the room and then Percy stops. Goes, oh, wait, uh, my lady, was there anything specific I should give in the message? And Artemis thinks for a second. She goes, yes. Tell them that the pet. Tell them that the future is here. It's time we have to face it. They'll understand. Closing the door behind her, she prepares to get ready to go. This whole he's got to find his path, secret code. At this point, she's like, "It's we're there. There's, there's no need for this now. Shit's hit the fan. Tell them it's here." We got a work to do. So sure enough, it's not long after. Again, you got to imagine by this point, it's late at night. The party's finally winding down. People are exhausted. Drunk, probably. Going to crash out. Mercy, probably a little drunk. Mercy's a drinker. We know that. <laughs> They're in bed. She gets this message that Artemis is coming with those words, and, Ar and Mercy's like, yeah, Christ. Okay. Gets up, gets dressed, gets ready to go. Dandy was still there, <laughs> telling stories. Michael had gone home with Pedal, but Dandy already happened to be there. Conveniently. So convenient. And when, when Artemis arrives, they go into her little war room, which is a pretty, it's just off the main chamber, but it's secure. It's where they make plans, very thick walls, all that kind of business. They go in there. And Artemis tells them what happened. She'd already told the part about the Draven and him getting into the fight. But then when she explains this, you know, Mercy sends a runner, and sure enough, a message comes back soon saying, yeah, Deacon's gone. And upon checking, Mugen's gone too. All their stuff has gone with them. God, now I've got to tell this to Firemoon. That was not something I was planning on doing. Okay, all right, well, we've got that to deal with. They talk about what's going on. Artemis says her choice and why she chose it. And they're like, well, you know, if, if what we know about what's to come is true, that's the right choice. We have to let them go when, it's, when they want to go. We're going to have to have some conversations here, and they're not going to be easy. Like, so what do we do? Like, well, first thing we're going to do is we're going to need to tell Firemoon that his son's gone. And then we're going to need to talk to Darsh. Some plans that need to be. I've, I've reached the point that I got written. This is the stuff I didn't get to write. <laughs> so now I'm riffing on the end here. Because now 
Now we've got plans to make. Three women writing it agree. So, sending a messenger to Bork is actually staying in the keep. Get to Bork. They explain to Bork what's going on. They have the letter from Deacon. They didn't open it, of course. Basically, dressed to his dad. Giving it to you. And they go and they speak to him. So they have those magical orbs that they talk through. Right? There's something like that that she used to talk with Rafe. Once Deacon started staying here, they needed a way to communicate if they needed to. So they reach out to, to uh, Rafe. Rafe comes up. Conversation is had. And explain what's happened. And they give as much as they can. Dina, he probably already knows about, you know, all that stuff. This is where Dina's popped up. This is what happened. Killers are after her. They share everything that was in the letters. They talk about Mugen. They explain what's happened. They might leave out the whole fact that Seraph Draven got into a fight. They do say Seraph has run away after to get him, and that this young Mugen lad and Deacon have gone with them. Tabork is there for that conversation. He's there next to Mercy while she's talking to him. And Rafe asks a few questions. He seems very calm about this. You believe he, he, my son made the choice to go on his own? And like, yeah, I don't think he would ever let Seraph go by himself, and vice versa. If it was the flip side, I'm sure Seraph would have went with him as well. I don't think either one of them would have let one of them go without him. Um, so on and so forth. So there's a question. Ray thinks about it for a little while. All right, then. So be it. I will respect my son's wishes. Almost the same age I was. Nilat and I first went out into the world on our The last one to be telling him he shouldn't be doing so at his age. He's made this choice. So be it. Work. Finish up what you have to do there. Finish the signing tomorrow. This is still important business. And when all that's done, go ahead. On back home. Bring the letter with you if you Of course, my lord. Of course, he's like, wow, he took that really calmly. <laughs> of course, they may get off the phone, he starts punching walls, but in that, or in that moment in the orb, right? Like, he's like, he's okay with it. If there's anybody who <laughs> knows about fate and stuff, it's uh, the Fire Moons, right? They've been dealing with this even longer than our heroes. Okay. He's made the choice. Not to tell him all the secret stuff about Deacon from the future. They can't tell all that. They're not supposed to. Give Tabork the letter, information. Tabork goes back to his room. Mercy then goes downstairs and meets Artemis and Dandy, who are already talking to Darsh through the mirror in the secret room. They've caught him up on everything. Darsh is kind of blown away, and he's like, that's a lot to happen in a small period of time. He's happy to hear about Mugen. He's happy that Fig's got a family and all that kind of business. Happy that you know, Fig's son seems to be a cool kid. Um... And they get and they get to talking, and they're like, "Okay, well, what do we do? Well, we, let's let's talk about this. What's happened?" And they go over it all together again, piece by piece, talking, trying to figure things out. What's happening? Why is this happening? Why now? What, looking for signs. What did they miss? And Artemis says something that's almost like a slap across the face to Mercy. She like. Of, 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 like, you know, like, rudeness, but of, like, what? Artemis mentions something. Mercy didn't know. Because you remember, Mercy never read Dina's letter. Never touched it. 
handed it to Deacon. Deacon gave it back. He left with it. Even Artemis followed him. They read the letter themselves back there. She didn't even know that they were heading to RDL until that information was passed on by Artemis. So while they're going over the story, Artemis mentions something from the letter that she hadn't mentioned before because it hadn't really crossed her mind to be of importance. Mercy. Everything. Go back to the letter for a moment. Because I'm going to... I, very sneakily, didn't tell you this. Here we go. We get to this. I'm going to reread a paragraph from her letter. Weeks we spent, always on the run, barely stopping to rest. It was all so confusing. No one would tell me where we were going or what was chasing us. Even worse, though, my uncle and grandfather were always arguing, sometimes calling each other names I did not know. And then I went in to just kind of overread what was in the letter. Didn't read it word for word. Artemis now mentions that part of the letter. Wasn't anything major in her mind in the beginning. When Mercy hears it, blows her mind a little. She says, what were the names they were calling? Artemis has a good memory. She takes a moment. She thinks about it. Um, leave the letter said that the uncle, grandfather called the uncle, Kurgan. The uncle called the grandfather, Perrin. Mercy literally screams and starts kicking and hitting things. Kicks a chest, coins and gems go everywhere. Knocks a shield off the wall. Artemis and Dandy are like... But even Darsh is like, God damn it. How could we not have seen this? And he's like, what? I don't get it. What? What's happening? You're leaving out the good stuff. You're kicking things. I don't know the good stuff. And she's a little panicked as well. All the kids, right? And Mercy says, years ago, Darsh and I met a man named Kurgan. Known as Kurgan the Grey. He was known as what was a free bird. Those people who, by choice, fought in the gladiatorial arena of Oromon. Not only be a warrior, he was also one of the leaders Oromon's Rebellion. And when we made it a bargain with the Emperor's wife, the leader of the Rebellion, she promised to help us escape as long as we promised to take someone with us. Sure enough, when the time came and the revolt happened and we managed to get outside of the arena, 
we were met by an older man named Perrin. Carried with him a child. A little girl. The daughter of the Emperor of Oromon. Helped them flee. Went with us on the Morgenstern. They didn't have the Chimera yet. Darsh's original ship. Them flee to Paxawal. They were met by others from the Resistance who then took Perrin into their custody. And the last we ever heard of them. Kurgan the Grey and Perrin, loyal, loyal servant to her family, who was tasked with protecting And he's like, that means Artemis is like, my son has fallen in love. Princess of Oromon. Again, Mercy begins kicking and knocking things off the wall. Even in death, that bastard won't let things go. What do we do now? Artemis looks at each one. Mercy is starting to calm down a little bit. This doesn't change anything. Knowing this definitely makes things harder. But we still have the same decision we had before. We know what's going to happen next. How do we address it? They begin to discuss. Because Seraph has a lot of lore. Highly doubt that Deacon is going to be the only one to go help. The minor epilogue as we end today's episode. Knocking on the door, he hears, Go ahead and enter. Steps in the room and closes it behind him. Seated at the table of the war room is Mercy and Artemis. He sits down and takes a seat before his queen. He's not sure why he was summoned so early in the morning, late in the night. But when his queen calls, he does not hesitate. You summoned me, Quan asks. Yes. There's something we need to discuss with you. Something that's going to happen soon. And we feel you deserve to know some of it. I'm going to be honest, I can't tell you all. There are things I cannot share. But you will have to make the same type of choice we're making. You deserve to have as much information as you can. You're not, my lady. Whatever that decision is, it helps the kingdom. I'm going to make. Loyal guy, Quan. Artemis goes, yes, but this decision isn't about you. You're going to have to make it. 
that's where we're going to end for today. Right? Quan's the only one who doesn't know anything about the future. But Sun is one of that little troop of friends. And you can damn well bet Artis wants to go. Ran right behind. So that was today's episode. Thanks for coming, guys. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't get it quite like that. But uh, yes, so that was what is going to be the setup for what is going to be basically the next long ass period of our lives in Merge World as I tell this tale. We have Dina out there being chased by train killers. Men dressed all in black, oddly enough. I had to leave that out. It was going to be a little too obvious if I said that. Men dressed all in black. We have three would-be heroes. Seraph, Deacon, and Mugen racing after her. We have another smaller group of we have another group, larger group of heroes back home. We're going to have to make a decision. What are they going to do? So hopefully you can see how this could be a very long term, <laughs> right? This could be a very and it 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 very much harkens back to some of the very early days of Merged Worlds. Back when it was the Rafe and Nylat Fireman story. Because when Nylat kidnapped Michelle, Rafe's love interest. Um, there was a lot of story. It was them chasing them around the world trying to get her back. Storyline went on for a while. And this end of that storyline created merged worlds. It could almost be considered the end of this storyline could also change me. Yeah. I everything that happened today, all of it but Mugen has been in my head for years and years and years. Mugen was my link. Oh, by the way, I forgot. I should show you this. Kurgan the Grey. And Perrin. Dina's grandfather. Former. Yeah, men all in black would have made it too obvious. And again, there's a good chance many of you, or some of you, may have figured this out already. And if so, I'm fine with that. You know what I mean? Not everything can be a secret or a, a surprise at the end. I'm Hopefully a couple people didn't see that coming. But uh, at least not till this episode, right? I'm fine if people picked up on it this area. Once they realized she was in trouble, right? But yeah, putting men all in black would have been too easy to see their Oromanian elites, right? Um... And the fact that they had to go in and fight in the dead magic zone negated all of their magic weapons and stuff, which is why the gullies were able to take them down easier than they should have. And that's that's the big thing. Um, normally, 20 elites could have mopped the floor with 100 gully dwarves, no matter how trained they are. None of their weapons magic was working. You know what I mean? All the spells that they used, the enchanted gear, all that was nulled out completely. So, yeah. Bring those down. And pop this boy back up one more. Mugen could be 
the favorite NPC I've ever put together. And I have, I have, I have so much about him that I love. But I said I was going to address one thing later. Yes, in Mugen's hand, he's holding a flintlock pistol. I addressed that there, whatever type of magical explosions the gullies were using ripped through the attackers. I'm not a type of person that ever intended or will ever have guns in D&D. It's not the intention. No character is ever going to get their hand on a pistol. But it made sense to me that Tinker Gnome, in a ruined New York, would somehow find components or books or something that would lead them, and maybe even materials itself, towards replicating a basic version of something. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where, yeah, Mugen's got a gun. It's, it's not a good gun. I mean, it's good, good, but it's not a bad good. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's not the traditional... I wish you find inside the uh, archivist you find in the player's handbook. Second edition, the flintlock pistol was in the, the weapon choices. Uh, but it specifically says, if your DM will allow. Uh, there are no cannons. The pirates don't have cannons. Everybody uses magic. There's not going to be a swing where gunpowder and guns spread across the world and change the face of merged worlds. Never going to have that. His gun is the only gun that's ever going to leave New Gully. So which has been shortened from New Gullyville, which is still New Gullyville, but they just shortened to call it New Gully at this point. Um, so, yeah. But there's no way for me to make that mini without him having it, without you know he having it. So it made sense when he first said he had a, a weapon sheathed on his, on his waist that she didn't recognize. And then Fig's hammer, right? It's a good hammer, but it's not a magical hammer in New Gully. He's sending his son out in the world. Here, take this. As soon as you walk out of here, this it was from America, it was like a Warhammer plus four. And it's got a couple of abilities that I don't know if, you know, does he know what they are, how to use them? Eh, guess we'll see. But that was a very powerful Warhammer. Um, which was the fun part, because here, you have a magical Warhammer. Now go live where it doesn't work. <laughs> but yeah, he's going to put that into the hands of his son before he leaves. So, uh, and then the old shoe is just to be a symbol of, uh, New York, right? Tread in New York. And then the other piece of paper on the ground is the letter that he carries. So, really love the way Mugen looks. I was so happy with it. When they, see, they came out with the paints. Right now, they've got a thing going on in Hero Forge. Uh, it's they're called their Advent Calendar. They do it every December. And every day, they release a new thing. A uh, new item. One day was a toolbox. Uh, one day was bullet casings all over the ground because they do sci-fi stuff as well. So every day up till Christmas, they release something new. Um, but earlier this year, they released the tribal paints, and I started putting those on there, the henna-looking stuff. And that's where I got. I always said that there was tattoos all over the gullies back when they went there the last time. And I started making a gully dwarf, and that's where all of that just kind of steamrolled into coming up with uh, coming up with Mugen. I thought the name was fitting. Mugen, right? Anyways. Yeah, before I mention, before I even really started to describe Mugen, I think it was Michael who yelled out a gully dwarf. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, Figgy, uh, Figgy's doing some stuff. All right, wow. Whew, I feel drained. 
And my hand still feels numb from all the writing. I still, I literally was writing up to the last moments too. Um, oh yeah, definitely helps verify who he is for sure, for sure. Um, so yeah, it's it's a lot of a lot of pieces of puzzles fell into place today. Um, also allowed me to call back on seeds. Obviously, I mean, you look at the parent thing and the daughter of the princess. That was a long time ago. That was the same time that Artemis was overrun around with Draven. Seraph got conceived. Their group was split up at that point. That just shows you how long ago this led to. And I can tell you that the moment Seraph became a reality, he was going to fall in love with her. Always been that story. Those two were always going to be connected. So to bring Dina in and try to keep who she was out of the story... Not to give away too many clues by talking about her family that people would immediately know who she was. That was a challenge. Challenge. Yeah. So that's this one. Um, <laughs> next week, uh, next Thursday, is uh, Behind the Dice. Not quite sure what the topic is going to be. Uh, if anybody has specific topics they'd like me to address, let me know. Um, but uh, I will have something we'll talk about in 2nd edition next week. I'm sure 2nd edition will be involved. Maybe we'll do some more maps, because definitely I need to do some more maps. I haven't done a map in a while since the first episode. And then the week after that, my goodness. Wait, what week is that? Is that Christmas? Is that Christmas? I don't know if that's Christmas. Let me get my calendar out real quick. Mm-mm-mm-mm. So I'm definitely going to have one. We're still going to stream Christmas on a Saturday this year, so we don't have to worry about that. So let's see. Today's the 9th. Yes, the 23rd will be the next Merge Worlds episode. So uh, we'll have a little uh, pre-Christmas Merge Worlds. Maybe I'll try and squeeze something uh, holiday-themed into the adventure. I do like to do that on occasion. Uh, so then we have... So we've got... This is a long, this is a long month. One, two, three, four, five. So we got, yeah, behind the dice, a merge world, and then a behind the dice will be the day before New Year's. So we've got that as well. Thank you all so very much for coming and letting me tell this story. I say it a lot, but I truly do mean it. I wouldn't get to write this and get to share it with people if it wasn't for you guys listening to it and paying attention. Thank you very much for your support. If you enjoyed this, please be sure to click like, whether you're watching it today, tomorrow, or 10 years down the road, it would be awesome. As well, is if you do have an iTunes or Spotify and you're listening to us there, uh, please be sure, if you wouldn't mind, to give it a like or the stars or a rating or whatever that is. Uh, it definitely would help if you're listening to this on YouTube and you have an iTunes or Spotify. It would really help out if you wouldn't mind doing the same. Just give it a follow. The more people that follow it, rate it, and leave reviews the more people's eyes it ends up in front of. I just want to share my story with as many people. But that is going to do me for today because I'm physically and mentally drained and my fingers are so sore from pencil holding. I need to get something better. <laughs> Thank you all very much. I do hope you have yourself a wonderful day, a good rest of your week. And if I don't see you before then, I hope you have a wonderful holiday regardless of what you do. I hope you have a great Okay? Thank you for sharing Merged Worlds with me, and I will see you all again very soon. Have a great day.